Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, February 22nd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So the LSU Tigers upset another giant of college basketball, right? I mean, they beat the Kentucky Wildcats last night, a giant of college basketball. They upset the South Carolina Gamecocks Saturday, another giant of college. Yeah, okay. Yeah, now yeah. I know you. That sounded good until yeah, then. Right. Let, let's say this. They upsetted, uh, they upset, <laughs> they, they upset, upstart South Carolina Gamecocks Saturday. They did upset one of the college basketball giants yesterday. Here's an interesting question. You ready? I mean, I don't know how many matter. I mean, I don't really care. It matters to some degree. Who has the better men's basketball and baseball team, Clemson or South Carolina? I mean, I know the Tigers won the head-to-head. Good job. But, I mean, in all honesty, the season has played out. They've had ebbs and flows. To get, the Tigers had a lull. The Gamecocks are now in a, in a lull. But if they were playing on a neutral site, who's the better team? I mean, I think it's close. I mean, I'm not prepared to say, well, I'm sure the Gamecocks are better than Clemson. I don't know. I mean, I think it'd be a very close and competitive basketball yeah. game. Uh, it really depends on who shoots the three. It, it, it Basketball is kind of boiled down to that. College basketball has become a, a miniature NBA. If you shoot the three, you can beat about anybody. If you don't, anybody else can beat you because the three shot is so dominant in the grand scheme of things. And then in baseball, um, the Gamecocks and Tigers. Now, I will say this. Um, that's probably the only sport that the two share blue blood status. I mean, I do think the Gamecocks and Tigers throughout history, uh, if you look at the historical nature of Gamecock-Tiger baseball, they would be blue bloods. Um, I mean, as a Gamecock fan, I could argue, oh, you're really not a blue blood until you won a championship. I get it. Um, and then on the other side, if I argue Clemson is not a blue blood, you know what Clemson could say? And I'm talking about football. If I were to say Clemson's not Oklahoma, they're not Alabama, they're not a blue blood, they could say three national championships, mm-hmm. two in the last 10 years. How is that not blue blood status? So um, anyway, who's the better team today in men's basketball? Are either one of those men's teams better than Don Staley's women's team? <laughs> I think we know the answer to that. Yeah. Did you see the video of the and we knew this would happen. I mean, there there are smart Alex everywhere. There are some guys identifying as girls playing high school uh, female basketball, and they're just dominating in a way you can imagine. They're actually hurting some of the female uh, basketball players. I mean, they're knocking them to the ground. They're running over them. I mean, I think there was one game that three women's or girls basketball players were not severely injured, but injured enough to have to go get look-seed at the hospital. Um, That's pretty serious as far as I'm concerned. But you knew that was going to happen. I mean, you knew there would be some smart-aleck guys say, okay, I'm identifying as a female, and I'm playing women's basketball, and I'm going to be the superstar of all um, superstars. We we talk about American decline, and we wonder to what degree, how accelerated is the decline. And every now and then, I stumble on a data point that suggests we're falling faster than I ever imagined. What if I told you that I got it written down here? You ready? In the in the consumption of bovine meat, pig meat, poultry meat, fish, and seafood. I mean, I understand bovine meat is hamburgers, and I mean that that would be cow beef 
on the countryside. Uh, but in bovine meat, pig meat, poultry meat, fish and seafood, the poultry, excuse me, the, uh, the protein variety, guess whose consumption is this falling faster than any in the, in the developed world? Mm. Mm. The good old U.S. of A. We're consuming less bovine meat, pig meat, poultry meat, fish and seafood. Okay. I mean, we're still consuming. I think we're fifth in the world in total consumption. But our, our rate of consumption is in precipitous decline. I guess we're binded to vegetarians and save the planet. I don't know. I don't have any idea. So you can't really attribute that to a reason? Well, I, mean, I, mean, I would imagine. You hear all these talk about the, the climate and how cows, I guess, are bad for the climate or something? I mean, don't you hear about they need to come up with a meatless society? I, I, I don't know that it's Is that one, working? Well, I mean, maybe. <laughs> um, maybe the vegetarian fad is more pronounced than hmm. I ever imagined. Um, maybe someone on some of these um, some of these dots that include non beef eating. Um, I just believe maybe steaks expensive. Well, I mean, I'll give you advice. Well, I mean that's got a big part of it. I'll, I'll give you advice. Um, if you're going to be strong longer, you better eat some uh, some animal protein. I don't care what the vegetarians say. I don't care. I mean I mean that sincerely because I've done this about 20 years now, and I've you know I've delved into different diets and workout routines and. I've, I've read a lot about some of these things. Some are just crazy nonsensical. Others are science-based. But if you're going to stay stronger longer, you better eat some animal protein. That's just the, um, I mean, if I want to get conspiratorial, you ready, Josh? The government is convincing Americans to eat less meat, so we'll see a decline in masculinity. You know, the, the, the protein eating feeds the testosterone male, and the testosterone male, if you aren't careful, I mean, they'll get a bit rambunctious. And that, that, you know, that we could blame this animal protein as a result of that. I don't have any idea why. I just think it's interesting that of all the developed nations, our consuming of bovine meat, pig meat, poultry meat, food and sufficient seafood is in, I don't want to say precipitous decline, but it's declining faster than any nation in the developed world per capita. I mean, we're 340 million people. Um, some of the nations are much smaller than that. And some of the nations that are third world, what I'll call emerging nations, you know, they got emerging economies. They, they've lived in the dark ages for many, many, many years. They've got a taste of, you know, s s some of the modernity of a life and, you know, of the world, and they kind of like it. So developed nations, emerging markets. I mean, you see a big increase in the amount of animal protein. It's almost like a nation gets so wealthy, it gets full of itself. And it figures out a way to not do the essentials like eat animal protein. And some of the emerging countries, some of the developing nations say, man, we've been starving. <laughs> Give me some steak. Give me some hamburger. Give me some chicken and fish and seafood. Um, it's kind of a, I don't know. It's just a divert. Ah, it's just kind of an inverted way of, um, way of looking at things. 843-661-09. Funny that would catch your eye though. Well, I mean, it did. I mean, because one of our callers, Breeze and I, we talk a lot about fitness and wellness and working out and nutrition and whatnot. I shared a story yesterday that I went into a convenience store to get a protein shake, and the protein shake pre-COVID was two twenty-nine, and I remember it going from two twenty-nine to two ninety-nine. I mean, I don't remember much after that, um, but it went from like to like four ninety-nine to five seventy-nine. So in the past four years, it's gone from two twenty-nine to five seventy-nine. I mean, I don't know what degree of percentage that is. It's a pretty big increase. It's it's better than double 
as we like to say in the country, that thing doubled in price, man. <laughs> but yeah, it better than doubled in price. Um, and you're right. I mean, there, there may be a lot of people in America today going, wow. I mean, as much as I'd like to have that steak, I can't swing it. My car payment. Imagine America. Imagine you're selling an economic agenda called Bidenomics, and people are having to decide whether they stay once a week or pay their car payment. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's that's kind of where yeah. we, that's kind of where the working. I mean, I'm serious. And you're not far I'm, off. I'm not you're not exaggerating. I'm not trying to be funny. I mean, you know, you got a wife and two kids. You got a grill. You want to watch a ball game on a Saturday evening. You go to the grocery store and you pick you up four ribeyes. What does that set you back? I mean, it is substantial. I mean, it's, and you're like, well, like, uh, you know, I got a budget for this week and that gets me out of my budget. If I get out of my budget, I can't pay my car payment um, because the average car now is what, $60,000? Did we establish that earlier? 50 some odd um, thousand dollars. And they're selling, they're still trying to sell Bidenomics. Um, I, I don't want to pick on a caller, but I hadn't heard Williams call in a few weeks and discuss gas price. I mean, he, he called a lot when it was 239. Now it's back to around 290. I think I thought so cheapest today. I bet mean, I look when I go come to work is like 284, 289, 279. You know, I mean, it depends on what day of the week they got their delivery and what they paid for that really and truly in today's um, crude oil trading world where gasoline has a retail and wholesale price. I mean, it's always had a retail and wholesale, but not as affected by the day trading of, of oil as a commodity. But you could buy, I mean, you could buy gas that morning and pay less or more than if you buy that afternoon and your margins are set on what you pay wholesale. Uh, obviously, the retail price on the on the, uh, on the the digital billboards, or what am I trying to say, the signs mm-hmm. out front. I mean, you know, but yeah, I, I think there are people now that, that would love to have, you know, a state for the wife, a state for themselves, a state for the two kids, but go, you know, that's, that's 80 bucks. And I can't swing that. I mean, you know, my budget is X. If I spend an eighty dollars on four steaks, um, <laughs> so, so you go. You, you, I mean, it, as crazy as this is, it's cheaper to go to a fast food joint and only pay ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, only fifteen or sixteen. I'm telling you, Saturday was a revelation for me, and I don't know why. I mean, I go. I'm trying to get a hamburger. All I want is a hamburger. I got food on the grill. I mean, there's good food to come late in the afternoon. But I got to get me something in my stomach to get me to there. So I pull into a drive-through at a very renowned and popular um, eating establishment. There are millions of these around the world. And the lady says, and I quote, "I can't take your order." And I felt like saying, oh, "What you doing in there?" <laughs> I mean, I'm at the drive-through. There's only one thing I can do. You want to talk world peace? I mean, who are you voting for? No, I'm here to order a burger. So, so before I say anything, I can't take your order, sir. What good are you? Uh, I didn't say that. I said, what's up? She said, I can take an order on an app. If you want to pull in the parking lot and order on the app, I mean, you can walk inside and I'll have your bag ready. This is a crazy question, but why is that? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's five assigned to the morning shift and four didn't show up. Now, I built truck beds for a living. And truck body builders are kind of like painters. They like to drink beer. And some nights, they don't know when to say when. And some mornings, their head hurts worse than their burning desire to go to work. And they call in. We call it laying out. You ready? They lay out of work for a day. So you're shorthanded. You got to move some things around. 
but I don't know how you run a business when there are five supposed to be there. Now, I mean, it, it's harder, but you can swing one being out. You might could swing two being out. You're asking a little more of your other employees, and, you know, they get aggravated with one another. You know, I thought I had this good truck to work on. Now I got this bad truck to work on because he drank too much last night and it come to work. It's always kind of a, I mean, you're, you're balancing that. You got all these balls in the air. But, but imagine you're counting on five people to come to work. You come, nobody else does. I mean, I get it. I can't take your order. I would have turned the mic off. I mean, I, I just would have been, I, 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 I mean, to me, not answering the, the mic is a better answer than saying I can take your order via app because there's only one of five that showed up for work. So we mosey on down to the next. Yeah, and by the job. way, you have to give that worker credit. I you mean, do. they showed up and they are trying their best. And I mean, she did all she could do. I can't take your order, but if you'll pull to the parking lot and go on the app, I'll, I'll put it in a bag and you can come get it. She I mean, should be paid what all five of them would have been paid. I mean, yep. you know, yep. and, and that's, and I've told my kids and Josh, I'll tell you this. And, and I'm not saying one generation is better than another, but there is no doubt that work was more important to previous generations than it is today. I mean, it just is. I don't, I don't think it's your fault. I think the government has convinced you that you really don't have to work as hard as your grandfather and father did. I mean, they, you know, they didn't take the bait of government largesse. You've got an opportunity, Josh, to be in bed with government. And if you get in bed with government, we'll send you some goodies and you won't have to go to work. Now that there's a dependency clause that it creates. So anyway, the lady says, I can't take your order unless you do the app. I'm not doing the app. So we mosey on down. And I want to say this too, because uh, I, I can tell, because I know you, you wanted to be a smart butt. These things you're thinking to yourself that you didn't say to that person. Once you realized the predicament she was in and trying to do her best. I was just, sympathetic. Yep. You, you. You You're right. held back the, and you the, didn't make those comments. The Am initial I right? reaction was, "Why are we talking on the phone? Why right. are we talking on the on the on the radio right. here?" Yeah, I mean, you know, if you can't take my order and I'm in a drive-through at a hamburger joint, what good are you, honey? I mean, that that would have been the sexiest thing I said, but I did. You resisted the I urge. I did. She quickly said, I'm "Proud of you." If you'll pull in the parking <laughs> lot, because uh, my wife's already tapping me on the shoulder. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. <laughs> so we mosey on down to the Cajun chicken joint. And my wife and I have gotten older, so we share entrees. We shared entree. We didn't share a soda. We splurged. She got her own drink. I, and then Bojangles, the reason I like going to Bojangles, you ready? And I called them by name. The reason I like going to Bojangles, they sell Pepsi product. So we've given an opportunity to, to eat a little. I don't eat a lot of fast food, but when I do, I try to frequent one that serves Pepsi product. So Bojangles proudly serves Pepsi product. So we share a four-piece Supreme combo. Didn't get it biggie size. I mean, it's just like it comes. Four-piece Supreme Combo. We did splurge and get an extra soda. That'll be $16. That'll be $16. That can't be $16. There's no way that's $16. Can I get 90 days same as cash if you're charging me $16? <laughs> I mean, it's crazy what food costs. I mean, it is absurd mm-hmm. what food costs. It's been 30 years. I mean, I'm reading here now, Real Clear Politics, Lead Story, East Economy, it's been 30 years since food ate up this much of the American income. <laughs> I mean, that's right here. Yeah. U.S. economy, real clear politics, Bidenomics. Yeah, let's run on Bidenomics. Um, See, the funny thing is you're surprised about this. I I'm think not I, surprised about it. I'm I, angry about I it. I told you a story from, eh, it's been several months ago now, and probably the last time I ate fast food, and it was fast food burger place, went there and got two combos and another burger. So it was two full combos with the 
fries and a drink, and an additional just the burger. It was $28. That's insane. I mean, that, that's crazy. And I don't know how young people. That was started. my moment. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, you and I are more established. Josh and his generation are trying to make their way. And they have starter jobs and starter incomes. And I don't know how you make it. I mean, I really and truly don't. The only way, well, anyway, we're, we're running long here. I'm going to come back, Josh, because I, I mean, I, I want to get your take on this. Are you that aware of how expensive it is to live the average daily existence? Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I want to go back to the, the story that we dedicated. And Josh, I'm jumping around on you. But I want to go back to the story I, that we discussed yesterday. I mean, I'm reading during the break. I'm trying to get a, a more, more awoke, more awake, excuse me, than I, than I was 30 minutes ago. I hope to be a little more awake by 7 than I was at, at 6. And as the show um, goes, I've, I've read a lot in the last 12 hours about people defending. I mean, you got law professors, you got legal theorists, you got liberal pundits, you got a lot of people out there saying that the argument the Trump crowd are making on this victimless crime, and I'm talking about Deutsche Bank, but Deutsche Bank testified to the Trump hearing that Letitia James brought the charges, uh, the judge, what's the name, Ergeron? I mean, he's the, you know, he's the weirdo that brought forth, uh, that basically made a ruling and a decision. But a lot, of, a lot of us, and I'm talking about businessmen and women, are arguing it's a victimless crime. I mean, they're, they're, nobody got hurt. Deutsche Bank loaned money. Trump borrowed money. Trump made money, paid the money back. I mean, that's the essence of business and borrowing money and cash flowing and, and financing and EBITDA. I mean, it, it gets complicated, but it's about as simple as that. I mean, when a client, businessman, A, businesswoman, B, borrow money from Bank A, Bank B, in this case, Deutsche Bank, they negotiate. I mean, on one side of the table are sophisticated businessmen and women. I would imagine when Trump meets with Deutsche Bank, there's an accountant, there's a lawyer, that there's some sort of um, uh, financial uh, analyst on the on the Trump team. I mean, you don't run a multiple hundred billion dollar a year business not being sophisticated. So there's a sophisticated, um, sophisticated arrangement that they make one with the other. Deutsche Bank, I got to believe, didn't walk in with one man and a briefcase. I got to believe they probably had some of their loan officers, some of their credit reviewers. So Trump's there to borrow, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars. I'm making this up. Trump's there to borrow a couple of hundred million dollars. Deutsche Bank says, okay, Donald, what are you putting up for collateral? And I would imagine somebody on Trump's team said, well, we sent you three emails and we sent a package in the mail. We FedExed or, or UPSed you a package. Um, let's go over that now. And they look at the properties and look at the buildings and they look at some of the cash flows and they look at the success or, or I doubt Trump has a failing business that he's trying to put up as as collateral. But he says, these are wonderful properties, and they're worth $500 million. And Deutsche Bank says, Donald, we, we looked at the emails. We let our, our, our credit folks look at it. We let our, our, our loan review board look at it. You've, you're saying they're worth $500 million. Donald, we think they're worth $250 million. I mean, our, our evaluation is half what yours is, but it's still good collateral. I mean, we're not going to argue over it's worth five hundred million or two hundred fifty million. You say five, we say two fifty. Donald says, "Well, I mean, that's that's a low. You've lowballed me. You lowballed me. I mean, it's worth more than that." 
well, Donald, I mean, the, we, we, we got to be safe here. We got over, I mean, we got underwriting. We, we got, you know, we got the FDIC. We got, um, we, we got federal agents to come in our bank to make sure our, our books look like they are supposed to look. And they're probably going to be paying close attention to your loans. Donald, to be honest with you, I mean, the Biden administration runs some of the bank regulating. Um, they're not going to be sympathetic to you if you overvalue some of your property. And Donald says, I don't care what you say they're worth. They're mine, and I think they're worth $500 million. Well, I mean, who says what it's worth? Does Deutsche Bank set the value? Does Trump set the value? I mean, if Trump sold the property, what does it bring? I'll go back to a baseball card show. I'll never forget this. I went to a baseball card show in Charlotte one year, long, long time ago, because I wanted to see a Mickey Mantle rookie card. I mean, I wanted to look. I mean, I'd, I'd seen him in the books, and I was a big baseball fan. I wanted to see a Mickey Mantle rookie card, and I did. And it was about $60,000 at the time. That's the book value on the card. There was a buyer there. I mean, there were a couple of buyers there, but they began haggling and a crowd gathered. I mean, it's like somebody getting hot at the dice table. I'm in a crowd. Hey, somebody over there trying to buy a Mickey Mantle rookie card, man. Let's mosey over there and check it out. And, and we did. And we got over there and they're arguing about what the card's worth. And I'm thinking to myself, it doesn't matter what the book says. I mean, there's a book called Beckett. I mean, it's a Beckett buyer's guide. And Beckett places a value on that. I mean, it's a grade one through 10. Does it have a bent corner? Is it centered? You know what I mean? There's, there's a grading given to the, to the baseball card and they argued over 35 to $75,000. Now the book says it's 50. The buyer said it's worth 35. The seller said it's worth 75. I think they ended up at about $60,000. The value is always arbitrary. I mean, it could be more today than tomorrow. I mean, it could be, less today uh, than tomorrow. But the bank and Donald Trump had a very sophisticated negotiation, and out of that came a deal. And Donald Trump wanted to get the best terms. They wanted to make the most money. There's some middle ground there. The bank gives some. Trump gives some. The only part that matters to me, did he pay the money back? He did. He paid the money back. Deutsche Bank testified in New York court that Donald Trump borrowed money and Donald Trump paid money back, and we'd loan Donald Trump money again tomorrow to do another deal. And the loaning of money, the, ne- the lending of money next time would probably include some of the negotiation. Donald thinks a lot of his property. I mean, he thinks the brand is worth a lot more than we think it's worth. But, but we were well collateralized. We saw positive cash flows. We lent the money. He paid the money back. What's the big deal here? Well, some of the legal theorists out there are arguing because we're talking about a victimless crime. Nobody got hurt in this. The, the, some of the liberal pundits and legal theorists are arguing some of the drunk driving laws. And they're basically asserting that if Josh drinks too much, gets in his car and drives home, but makes it there safely, they still have an obligation to keep Josh off the road. I mean, nobody got hurt. Josh didn't run anybody. There's not, you know, um, reckless homicide or, you know, driving under the influence. He didn't, you know, run over a school bus full of kids. Um, Josh made it home okay. But it's our job basically to monitor, literally police behavior to make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, I get that. I mean, I understand that. And I guess that's the best argument you can make, but isn't that a reach? I mean, what, what do we make of that? So we're arguing 
that a banker and a borrower look one another in the eyes and they argue over what a piece of property is worth and they come to some agreeable compromise. I mean, the business guy always thinks. My banker told me a year ago, every financial statement you give me, I reduce by third. I mean, I don't think you're that arrogant. I don't think you're that big a liar. But but I would expect you to think a lot more of your stuff than I do. He said, I mean, don't, don't feel don't feel bad. I mean, I do it to everybody. I mean, he's a commercial lender. He said, every financial statement that you or people like you give me, I automatically assume it's a third inflated. It's your stuff. You you naturally think more of it. And he said, I don't declare a value. I just tell you how we book it at the bank. I mean, I guess that's declaring a value, but it's your stuff. And if you think it's worth a million dollars and we think it's worth a half million, but you won't sell it for a half million, it's worth more to you than a half million dollars. So the argument is the owner of the property has no say in what its value is. I mean, the owner of the property can't be the only say. I mean, we, we said that. It's not, I mean, Trump doesn't say, hey, I need to borrow money and I got this building worth $100 million. Okay, Donald, come over tomorrow and sign the papers. It's, it's bizarre to me that, that we've allowed this to be somewhat legitimate and normalized. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Williams. You're on. Hey, good morning, Ken. Um, do um, you actually have the best economic on the planet, right? I think the United States economy is struggling, and the polls clearly show that the American people think That's like me, I man. do. Come on, man. Come on. They got the best economic plan on the planet. Is that right? Well, I mean, I'm looking at uh, who do you trust on the economy? Trump plus 25. Trump, man, he left office with 6.4 unemployment rate. He had 8.2 to the debt, trillion to the debt. Come on, man. So why do the American people, I'd be interested in your answer. So why do the American people trust Trump with the economy so much more than they trust Biden? Okay, let, let me ask you this. If you get a warning that is of a rapist in your neighborhood, would you trust your daughter with a rapist in the neighborhood? Yeah, but now you, you're demanding I answer your question and you never answer mine. I'm, I mean, it, I mean, let's have a conversation. I mean, I'm trying to no, know. I'll answer your question. If I knew there was a rapist in the neighborhood at large, I would not let my daughter or wife leave the house. That's my answer. Now, now why do the majority of Americans trust Donald Trump by an overwhelming margin on the economy than they do Joe Biden? Hey, I go by the facts. I don't go by. But I mean, that's a fact, Williams. That's that's a fact. The fact is, you look at the facts. When Trump left office, it was six point four percent. I understand that, but but it seems the polls are clear here. I mean, I mean, the, you, the, you, the American you, people believe that Donald Trump can be trusted with the economy a lot more than they believe Joe Biden can. I'm, I'm asking, why do you believe that's the case? Hey, I don't think that's right, man. I don't think that's right, man. Okay, well, let me let me get this point. I got another point. Okay, Donald Trump been convicted of being a sexual abuser. Better known as a rapist. 
that he's a fraudster. He fraud people. Okay? And one more thing. Where do Donald Trump keep kissing Putin butt? Have a good day. Williams, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Is gas more or less than two twenty nine? Because you told me when it was two twenty nine. I hadn't heard you. I mean I need I need a gas <laughs> price update from Williams. <laughs> Hey, hey, man, I bought gas in Orange Bridge yesterday for two seventy one. Okay, that's more than oh. two twenty nine, though, right? Huh? So gas has gone up since you and I last spoke. It's going up. It fluctuates. Some weeks it's up. Some weeks it's up. <laughs> it fluctuates. It fluctuates. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Williams. I appreciate it. Bye bye. What was the gas in November of twenty twenty? It was about a dollar sixty one or right. seventy one or eighty one. The one thing, and I'll give Williams it, it does fluctuate. <laughs> it does. I mean, but 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 once you insinuate that a president is in charge of cheap gas and gas goes up. And he's not in charge of that. I mean, it fluctuates. It fluctuates. It's the dynamic of the free market, <laughs> but but it's a rigging of the market as well. And I don't want to get into what some of the speculators do in regards to pricing oil and energy. And anyway, uh, we'd probably be better off. And I mean, I mean, it, this is a bit anti-capitalist. We'd probably be better off price controlling oil. I mean, we, in all honesty, we because the speculators have too much influence in what a barrel of oil is. They can buy millions of barrels of oil and never take delivery that 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 may be the one thing keep oil trading the way it is but if you buy it you got to take delivery of it because they i mean they, they they play games with the numbers and the the um the cycles of purchasing and whatnot production quotas and the margin of uh production and consumption anyway it's kind of a uh it's a very risky business but it's unbelievably profitable if you get on the good side of some of these fluctuating trades let's go to the phone joe in hartsville hi joe you're on well you can tell how effective msnbc is can't you he's a rapist and a i mean he's everything he's a a fraud he's a fraudster and a rapist yeah Yeah, it's amazing if he if he wants to see facts he ought to go to the to the bureau of labor management and actually go in you got to study and you got to go in and look at their numbers but they'll tell you the truth. January of 2023, we had 133.2 million full-time jobs in the United States. January of 24, we had 133.1 million full-time jobs in the United States. So what does that tell you? All the job creation is part-time jobs. And second jobs, Joe. I mean, a lot of it's second yeah, jobs. Third tr- jobs. Yeah, second it's uh, trying to keep up job. with the price of the price of the economy. But the hours worked went from thirty four point four to thirty four point one, so it's getting worse, and and they don't want to see it. But the people in New York, what we were talking about earlier, are are going to do something that the terrorists didn't do on nine eleven, and that's bring down the world's financial capital in New York. Because if this stands, all the capital will flee New York. Because there's something, and they brought it up, I've been wondering how long it take them, the Eighth Amendment, the, the cruel and unusual punishment and excessive uh, bond and, and fees, fines. Um, they looked at, at Trump's cash flow 
and said, "Oh, he's got about five hundred million dollars, so we're gonna we're gonna find you three hundred, four hundred million dollars." That that's excessive, and the Supreme Court already shot that down in 2019 because they said, "Oh, Eighth Amendment doesn't apply to the state." Yes, it does. A guy got like twelve hundred, fourteen hundred dollar fine for marijuana or meth or something, and they confiscated his rover, Range Rover, which was forty two thousand, and he took it to the Supreme Court and got it back because that was a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So there's all kind of violations here because they're talking about confiscating Trump Tower if he don't pay that four hundred million dollars. So they're trying to destroy everything. All the venture capitalists are saying, don't go to New York now. So it's, it's going to start, and and it's going to wake up like Eric Adams did and say, well, we can't do this no more, but it'll be too late. So y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. I've tried to be very candid. I don't understand lawfare. I'm not a legal theorist. I'm obviously not a lawyer. This business deal that Trump finds himself in um, New York, I am aware of that. I mean, like Rev said, why are you so much more worked up about this than you were the indictments of the taking off the ballot? I understand it. I mean, I've lived it. It's not something I read about. It's not something that, that I scratch my head trying to understand. I don't call my lawyer friends and say, hey, am I interpreting this right? I mean, do I have my arms around the facts here? What am I missing here? But I went back last night and read, uh, Joe was talking about the, the amendments and some of the, some of the precedent cases and whatnot. I mean, when you plead the fifth, I think the majority of people, the fifth amendment, I mean, you kind of, I plead the fifth. I mean, I, I have the right to not self-incriminate, right? I mean, that's the fifth amendment, but there's more to the fifth amendment. And I want to read this verbatim. You're right. But you do have a right to not self-incriminate yourself. So you plead the fifth, um, on the, on the advice of my counsel, I'm not willing to answer that question at this moment. I mean, we've seen it a hundred times. Um, you, you always question about, well, why won't you answer the question? Well, there's a chance you self-incriminate. You're dealing with skilled prosecutors and skilled lawyers and a legal system that at times doesn't appear to be seeking the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But I read on in the Fifth Amendment, it, there's no doubt that you don't have to answer questions if you believe there's a chance you self-incriminate. But it also says, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, and here's the key part, nor to be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall give private property be taken for public use without just compensation, without due process of the law. And, I mean, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Once again, I may be confused here. But how do you not have a right to a jury trial? How can a, an elected official in New York, a prosecutor, who basically said, if you give me a chance, I'm going after Donald Trump. I mean, I think he's a fraudster. I think he's a con man. I think he's bad for New York. And if I get elected, I'm going to show you that I'm not afraid of the big bad giant. So she gets elected. Soros funds it. She gets elected. She does exactly what she said she would do. A judge, here's the case. The judge on the front end of the hearing basically said that I kind of agree with Letitia James. Let's get to the bottom of it. I mean, this guy's a crook. Let's prove it. 
And out of that comes, out of a, a prosecutor running for office to go after someone, a judge declaring him guilty before he even gets to the courtroom, they present facts saying, I, I don't know the fact witness on the other side. I mean, did Letitia James testify? I mean, I don't know. Don't have any idea. I know Trump and the bank did. And the bank said we loaned him money, paid back, we'd loan it to him again. And the judge didn't hear any of that. So, so, so Trump is given a chance to say, you're right, your honor. I mean, I misstated values. I embellished the value of my property. I misrepresented the value of my property. Trump didn't do that. Trump said, your honor, I don't know what you, but I know this property up one side and down the other. And I wouldn't take less than hundred million for it. I mean, the bank says it's worth less than that. It still put them in a good collateral position, but I wouldn't take what the bank said it's worth but I'm a business guy and I got to make business deals work. So the bank and I negotiated, we haggled, we argued over some things, but is that due process? I mean, did the judge, do you really believe the judge understood anything about the relationship between banker and client? No, he's a judge. How many judges have degrees in business? How many judges have ever signed the front of a paycheck, but he's authorized by the state of New York to do what he chooses to do. Is that due process of the law? I mean, is that equal application of justice? That's where I get so concerned without due process of the law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just comp- What am I missing here? Lawyer friends, back in a few. 436610937. I don't want to mislead our audience. I would never do that. I mean, I, I will try to make you think a little bit, try to make you concerned about certain things that I think we should be legitimately concerned about, but I, I would never in a million years suggest um, something that's not true. And, and Rev and I've talked about the truth is in uh, the pursuit of the truth is what I'm more interested in. How do you get there? I mean, you have an opinion. Is your opinion truthful? Is it honest? I mean, I know how I feel, but, but is it based in fact, or is it based on my feelings? And we talk a lot about that. Um, long way to say this. I am sure, well, I am almost certain that Robert Cahaley will be with us at 9.05. And that's a good treat. Two days, good job, Josh, getting Robert to agree to come on at 9.05 today, um, two days before the South Carolina primary. I can't imagine a better time than today to have Robert Cahaley on to kind of bring us up to speed about what he thinks will happen Saturday in the Republican primary. And I want Robert to play best case Trump, best case Nikki. Why best case Trump? Why best case Nikki? Where do we go from here? So I'm almost certain that Robert Cahaley will be with us at 9.05 to enlighten you, the listeners and callers, about you know what may transpire this Saturday in South Carolina as we are the epicenter of American politics once again. I woke up to a text. Excuse me. Someone befriended me. Nah, what am I saying here, Rev? It's not Facebook. They followed you. I mean, they on, followed on me X. on Facebook. Someone Twitter. followed me on Facebook. So I learned it on Twitter. Twitter. X. Keep saying face on X on X. Someone, let's start this over. You ready? <laughs> Someone followed me on X late yesterday afternoon. And I always go to see how many followers they have, how relevant they are. And it was Trump's media director and surrogate organizational leader. I don't, I mean, I'm making that up, sir. So I mean, in other words, they find surrogates, they find uh, media contacts that they think are important and they reach out. So she followed me on X. I followed back once I read the profile and Googled and saw she was legit. 
I woke up this morning because she obviously goes to bed later than I do. I woke up this morning to a private message on Twitter from the Trump media director and campaign surrogate organizer extraordinaire asking for a point of contact. She's trying to arrange Donald Trump to call in to the radio show. I've got no idea if that happens or not, but I don't want to know and you not. I mean, I I want you to be on the secret along with me. Um, I responded. I sent her my personal contact, email, and cell phone. I sent her the radio show called-in number and said, hey, if you don't mind, give me a heads-up via text to my personal number so I can let Josh, our producer, know that there's a time and a chance that President Trump may call in um, to wake up Carolina. So I am almost sure that we've got Kahaley lined up. I am nowhere near sure that Donald Trump's calling in, but I want you to know um, something that got me a little bit excited about this morning when I woke up and um, and she had sent me a message saying, you know, I'm trying to organize a call to your show from President Donald Trump. Give me some information. And I didn't delay. I gave her the information <laughs> almost instantaneously. And I think she had read some tweets I put out recently. I am tired of being insulted. I mean, I, you know, I just I, my name is Ken Arden. I'm an alcoholic. I mean, my, my name is Ken Arden. I'm a Trump supporter, and I'm not dumb, and I'm not lazy, and I'm not in a cult, and I don't need anybody telling me, you know, in, in the most arrogant way fashionable why I am doing or why I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. It's as if they turn into these rude, I almost said it, these rude son of a guns. When they, when they feel like, okay, he's a Trump voter, they're obviously below average intellect. I mean, they have no understanding of the complexities of American government or the constitutional nature of which we govern ourselves. I understand all of that. And I've decided beyond a shadow of a doubt, Josh, that Donald Trump is clearly, clearly the best suited to lead us through this very chaotic period in, uh, in political history. The chaos that he's a part of but I'm not sure he asked for it. I mean, I day he did for some. I mean, there's no doubt that Donald Trump picks fights. He kind of enjoys that. He wins the majority of those political squabbles, political contest that he has. So I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll readily admit that at times he gets what he deserves. Chaos ensues. Some controversy follows. But a lot of this is unnecessary. I mean, a lot of this he didn't go looking for. I'm mean, going to imagine, once again, I, I did a podcast yesterday, and I think we're going to put it out today, and I'd love for you to watch it. I mean, I, it's, a, it's a movie script. I'm mean, going to imagine a hypothetical. I mean, this would never happen in America. It could in, in China. It could in Russia. But imagine a business guy who'd never run for office, decided to run for president, shocks the world in 2016, wins the presidency. They do everything they can to make his presidency a failure. I mean, he co-opted with the Russians. He's a he's a stooge for you know some of the uh, some of the foreign diplomats who want NATO abolished, and he's a friend of China. He's a friend of, of Putin. He's uh, you know he's all these anyway. Um, he loses in 2020, and we can debate you know the loss. Some of the, but he loses. Some of the election was certified. We had a lot of controversy around uh, that election, and he comes back to run in 2024. And he appears to be on his way to winning the presidency again. And instead of giving the guy his due, and I mean, I don't think, I mean, I, I can't speak for Trump, 
I don't want him to get any more than he deserves. I just admit that he's a mixed bag. I mean, I don't support everything he says, everything he does. I think he's clearly the best choice. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt he's the best choice, and I'm somewhat informed. I mean, I'm not a moron. I understand politics. I understand business. I understand the Constitution. I understand the way in which we govern ourselves. And to me, in my calculus, he is clearly the best suited person. What What is qualifications? I didn't say qualified because I don't know what that means. I mean, what makes you qualified to be president? He's the best suited person to be president of the United States today. And he started indicting him of crimes. I mean, he's 70, what, 77 years old? I think he's 77 now. He spent 70-some-odd years of his life never being indicted of a crime. I mean, his business life has been a mixed bag. Join the club. I mean, most businessmen or women have had successes and failures. His failures are big. His successes are big. He's kind of a big personality. He goes home or go, what it was the old saying, go Go big or go go home. home. I mean, that's how he rolls. So when he fails, it is stupendously. When he succeeds, it is equally stupendous in his successes. Um, But all of a sudden, he's got 91 indictments of the man that had never been indicted of a crime. I mean, he's been in a thousand trials. I mean, he's been sued and he sued other people, but he's never been charged with a crime until he decides to run for president. And some find him unacceptable and they go after him. I mean, we, we could make this complicated, but they go after him. Who are they? I'm tired of you talking about they. I wish I knew exactly who they were because I'd try to bust their ass. I don't have any idea who they Well, that's a, I have an idea who they are. But, I mean, they don't line up in a profile for, for p- police work to say, hey, who was the person that did that to you? Uh, the one holding up number three. I mean, it's not that. I mean, it's the uniparty. It's the ruling class. It's the establishment. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to describe that. But anyway, the guy that had never been indicted lived a very complicated personal and professional existence, but some way, somehow, had avoided criminality until now. You charge him with 91 crimes, guess what? He becomes more popular. So what do you do when you charge a guy with a crime that becomes more popular? You figure out a way for voters to not be allowed to vote for him. So you take it, oh, this is hypothetical. I understand that I'm talking about Russia and China. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about a banana republic somewhere out there somewhere. But we're talking about Hollywood scripts. So you take him off the ballot. The Supreme Court has to rule. As you're taking him off the ballot, guess what happens again? He becomes even more popular. The people of America, to an even larger extent, wanted to be president. So then you try and bankrupt him. You go after his livelihood. And that's where I just don't know how anybody with a conservative bias can accept that. I mean, for the life of me, I don't understand the never-Trump conservative that says under no circumstance will he be the guy I vote for. I mean, if he wins the nomination, I'll stay home. If he wins the nomination, I'll vote Kennedy. If he wins the nomination, I'll vote Biden. I don't get that. I mean, if you are a believer in the separation of government and business, I, I this is totally unacceptable, beyond the pale. Well, American, take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Great television senior national editor and White House correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. Hope you're doing well today and having a great week. We are having a great week. I mean, we had President's Day off, so it's been a short <laughs> week. Feels like um, 
It feels like a Wednesday, but it's actually a Thursday, and I like that, John. So That's let's a good um, thing. absolutely. I mean, w- one of the most critical moments in a presidential primary in the Republican Party is South Carolina. Uh, we like to say we pick presidents. Forget what New Hampshire and Iowa do. We pick presidents <laughs> in South Carolina. There's an oddity this year, John, and you know it. I mean, a former governor of South Carolina is one of two candidates vying for the Republican nomination. And even more odd, it doesn't appear that her home state is going to treat her very well. Uh, We'll have Robert Cahaley in the 9 o'clock hour, but all the polling I'm seeing that I have any faith in has Trump at least 20 points ahead in South Carolina. John, what do we make of that? Well, what we make of that is that Donald Trump is just marching on his way to the Republican nomination, uh, and he's storming through South Carolina, even though Nikki Haley has won statewide twice in South Carolina. Uh, this is an odd year, and I think Donald Trump has made clear that the majority of the Republican Party want to see him as the Republican nominee. Uh, and I think the big question after South Carolina uh, isn't you know whether Nikki Haley loses, but by how much and whether this impacts on her decision in terms of moving forward with the process, remaining in the race through the Super Tuesday primaries, which occur on March the 5th. John, I mean this not in an insulting way, but a very uh, complimentary way. You're an old hand at this. I mean, you've been around the White House. You've been around Washington for a long time. Um, Every time a president had legal problems or a candidate for president had legal problems, they paid the price of the ballot box. It looks to me that every time Donald Trump has some sort of legal situation he finds himself in, his poll numbers go up. I've never seen anything like that. And the latest, and I had someone tell me last night, John, that I have a lot of faith in. I mean, they know South Carolina at like the back of their hand. And they said Nikki may have been closing a little bit until Trump's case in New York hits the airwaves. And the 350 some odd million dollar judgment looks to have increased his lead in South Carolina. That's the craziest thing I've ever seen, but you've been around longer than, than I have. Is this, how crazy is that? Well, it is pretty unusual, that's for sure. And he has taken advantage of all of the legal matters that he's dealing with in terms of having Republicans coalesce around his candidacy. And uh, you mentioned, uh, I mentioned Republicans coalesce around his candidacy. It's not helping Donald Trump in uh, going after what he views, I am sure, as the big prize. That's the White House. This does not help him with independents. certainly doesn't help him with Democrats, uh, but it's helping him with Republicans. Uh, and, you know, the whole uh, race for the presidency is one in which you first need to win your party's nomination before you can compete in the general election. And Donald Trump is on his way to doing just that, amassing the delegates that he needs uh, to win the Republican nomination at the convention in mid-July, and for Nikki Haley, you know, look, I think that as, as long as she has uh, the funding to continue on with this race, she will continue on. I think that she made that uh, clear just the other day when she had that precedent. John, I think the civil fraud judgment will help Trump with independence. I mean, I, I really do. I think there's a sense of unfairness that a lot of people see. I think politics is politics, and people understand the rough-and-tumble nature. But I think going after a man's business in the way the state of New York has, will encourage independents to look on him a little more favor. I don't have any polling. That's a kind of a gut and an instinct. You're a lawyer. Yeah. G- give us yeah. the skinny on exactly what happened in New York. 
Well, what happened in New York is that uh, a judge, not a jury, determined that Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, was liable for civil financial fraud, uh, several counts uh, in terms of what the New York State Attorney General brought against uh, the former president in terms of uh, the civil case. And then the judge also determined the penalty for that civil fraud. And it was determined that Donald Trump uh, benefited by overinflating the value of his real estate properties, saved himself a considerable amount of money in terms of what he would have paid if he was truthful in his financial statements. And uh, through all of that, uh, the judge determined what the penalty should be. And as you point out, over $354 million penalty with interest on that judgment every day that that penalty um, is not paid. And so he now has to contend with coming up with a bond uh, to uh, put in place uh, while he pursues an appeal as it relates to this judgment, an appeal with a New York state appellate court. That is what he's facing right now. I think it's a very real threat to his business empire, this judgment, uh, which was announced last week by the judge presiding over this case. And, John, my interpretation, he can't appeal the the judgment, the decision, until he posts the bond. That is correct. And he's got 30 days to do so. And yesterday he asked the judge presiding over this case, the judge that he has repeatedly insulted uh, publicly in the courtroom, on social media, uh, for a 30-day stay on his ruling. Um, you know, just human nature. If you've been insulted by uh, an individual who uh, whose case you're presiding over, I don't think you're going to, you know, give them a helping hand. And so it, I think it's very likely that the judge uh, will deny that stay and the clock is ticking in terms of paying that bond so that Donald Trump can pursue that appeal. So if the judge, I mean, this is where I think you can help me understand. If the judge didn't trust Trump's evaluation or the bank's evaluation, an appraisal and and the deal they made between Deutsche Bank and Trump. Who did the judge trust to say the buildings are worth X or the property's worth Y? Well, there were experts that uh, were brought in during the course of this uh, multi-week trial that took place in New York City. And uh, what was also determined is that uh, he got the most, he being Donald Trump, got the most favorable um uh, interest rate as it relates to uh, various properties. But isn't that his and obligation it, as a business person? What isn't what his obligation as a business to try person? and get the best deal, to trying to get the most favorable yeah, rates? But, but but if you if, if if you were were living if you were applying for a loan uh, and you were saying that your house is forty thousand square feet and your house is only twenty five hundred square feet, you've lied on documents. And that's a federal. But the bank would never lend me money without evaluating. I mean, the bank's not going to loan you money based on what you say something is worth. That's what I don't understand. I mean, once again, I accept politics as politics. I've been in business my entire adult life, and I've always negotiated with banks. And banks have always hair clipped, you know, whatever we say the business is worth or whatever we think the cash flow will be. But all of a sudden, a, a judge decides that the deal a business owner and a bank made. Or, or is it fair in the interest of the taxpayer? That's just where I think the majority of business people get lost. Yeah, but if you violate New York state law, no matter who you are, you have to pay the price, you know, no matter who you are. But, so, but that's not you know, what the it, governor said. The governor said the rest of New York City business owners don't have anything to worry about. This was kind of a one-time ordeal. 
I, I don't know. I no, that's what she said. I don't speak on behalf. Well, of I her understand that, but I mean, it, it, it just it, it reeks of, of selective prosecutor. You're yeah. asking me as a lawyer <laughs> to tell you that if you if you if you are an individual and you violate the law, that there are penalties for violating that law, no matter who you are. If he was not Donald Trump but Donald Smith, and he owned properties that he overvalued in order to get better loan terms. Uh, you know, again, this is up to uh, the New York State Attorney General in terms of where she wants to spend her resources. And unfortunately, uh, it, the, the, the stars aligned so that someone who really dislikes Donald Trump uh, is the person who's deciding which cases to bring. Uh, that's unfortunate. The stars aligned against Donald Trump in this particular case. Yeah. Last question. From a lawyer's perspective, why is he not yeah. entitled to a jury trial? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know New York state law. I don't know why there was not um, a jury that determined whether Donald Trump was liable or not liable as it relates to this particular matter. My understanding, however, was that there's a, a, a box that as a lawyer you check in terms of what it is that you would like to decide this particular civil matter. And Donald Trump's lawyers did not check the box. That would mandate a jury trial. That is my understanding. So to me, this was a, a mistake that was made by Donald Trump's attorneys more than anything else. I want to get to your work. Last topic I want to touch with you. You had a chance to interview the Ukrainian ambassador. What what were uh, some have seen and listened to that? Some have not. What why was that important to you? And what did you glean from that? Well, she's the strongest voice speaking on behalf of Ukraine here in Washington. She uh, meets and speaks with uh, members of Congress, Democrats, Republicans, independents every day. And as you know, you know, this uh, aid bill, uh, which contains $60 billion in funding for Ukraine, passed the Senate 70 to 29. Uh, 22 Senate Republicans joined with most uh, Senate Democrats in passing that legislation. And now it's up to the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, as to whether or not he will permit an up or down vote on the floor of the House. And I think the reason why she wanted to sit down with me, I've, I've known the ambassador, uh, is because, you know, great television. We have uh, local television stations all over the country. And right now, Congress is on this two-week break. It's an opportunity for her to reach out directly to those members and directly to those communities to express how important this aid is for Ukraine's very survival. If you want to defeat Putin... Um, she argues you, you really do need to support Ukraine. And if you want to avoid this war going beyond Ukraine into other parts of Eastern Europe, as Putin has threatened, uh, that's another reason to uh, support this aid package, as 22 uh, Senate Republicans uh, did just a few weeks ago. Fair enough. Thank you, John. Appreciate your time, sir. Have a great day Thank and great you. weekend. You too. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. John, John Decker, Great Television Senior National Editor and White House Correspondent. A little bit testy there. Uh, back and forth. I just don't understand that. I mean, I've heard that story. I've not seen the document about Trump's lawyers check the box that says we don't need a jury trial. We don't want a jury trial. I don't have any idea. I read last night uh, a lot about this case, and <laughs> I mean, this is this is the good and bad of Trump. I mean, this is who Trump is. I read that none of this property is in his name. It's all in some of these LLCs. I mean, tr Trump's a complicated dude. And, and I, I think every day Trump wakes up thinking somebody's out to get him. And how can I stop them from getting me? And there's a difference in getting and getting. <laughs> I mean, when, you know, you know where I'm headed. I mean, when, when you're trying to get somebody, I mean, that's a lot more dangerous than trying to get somebody. Um, and I, I don't know. I just read 
that he's got all of these LLCs and all of these companies and, and he's moved this property in somebody's name and this property's owned by a management company. This property's owned by, I mean, it all goes back to him. I mean, he's the, um, I mean, he's the, the, the grand poopa of Trump enterprises, but, but I think he's done more work than we can imagine <laughs> protecting some of these assets from litigation. If it ever comes um, his way, Donald Trump may have been born at night. You can bet your bottom dollar. It wasn't last night. Eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven is our number. Take a break back in a few. I don't know if you can detect. I'm sure you can. You can detect the intensity of my voice pick up when I start talking about. I'm sure the John Decker. Judge, but I'm, gonna, I'm sure I mean, he picked up on but, it. But I go back and I'm being redundant and I, and I tend to get, I mean, I can get real stubborn about some of these things. I understand that world, Josh. I mean, I didn't read about it. I, I, I didn't get lectured to by some, you know, business professor or economics. I mean, that, that has been my life. Every single day of my adult life has been getting up, trying to keep a business afloat, whether it's uh, the, the business my father started in 1973 um, and in just the craziest way imaginable, my political campaign. I treated it like a business. That's probably why I got in trouble because I moved money around and I did some things that don't quite make sense. And you're, is that, is that legal? I don't know, but it makes the most sense to me. So let's do it that way. I don't know what the campaign finance law says about that. And you know what I just tell Robert? I don't care what the campaign finance law says about it. It's my campaign. We're trying to win. We're not hurting anybody. We're just moving money around. We're, we're, you know, we're doing this and doing that and doing something other. So yes, I am very intense about that. I am, I am, bothered tremendously by the the 91 indictments. I mean, the taking someone off the ballot. I mean, that's as unpatriotic, un-American as you could imagine. I mean, that, that's banana republic kind of stuff. But but there's some acceptance that I have about politics. I mean, it's nasty. It's not fair. It's cutthroat. It's, it's, it's vile. I mean, it's just, wow, did they really do? Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of what they do in politics. But all of a sudden, trying to bankrupt a man whose father started a business, you may like the style of business. You may not like the style of business. Doesn't matter. I mean, Trump has a right to run his business as he sees fit. And if Trump were if Trump were a crook, you know what? He'd been indicted before he decided to become a political candidate. He's gone bankrupt. Uh, he's used the bankruptcy laws. I mean, I'm sure he has. There's no doubt about that. He's, I mean, didn't he say to Hillary Clinton on the campaign stage? I mean, if you, you know, this man doesn't pay enough in taxes. Um, well, if I don't pay enough in taxes, rewrite the tax code. But you won't rewrite the tax code because everybody that has ever funded your existence depends on that tax code. I'm just not one of those anymore. I'm one of those that decided to run for president. So, so I accept some of that politicking. But all of a sudden, a judge who's never been in business a single day of their life and, and, and court-appointed experts, bureaucrats, I'm sure they're bureaucrats, they meander into a courtroom and say the deal that Deutsche Bank and Trump Enterprises made doesn't meet the New York State government smell test. And we're comfortable with that? I mean, we're accepting of that? I mean, it goes back to how important political activism should be. Well, I think when something like that happens, political activism has to become more and more and more an ingredient of your DNA, or I'm going to sound apocalyptic, we'll lose this damn country. I mean, if people just say, I'll stand down, I mean, that's Trump. You know how Trump is. You know how the New York State is. I mean, if, if that's kind of where we end up, 
We'll lose the country. Let's go to the phone. Breeze. Hey, good morning. You're on. Kid, you gave that girl your, your cell phone number? Yeah, I did. <laughs> well, I guess I'll get proven wrong because I always say that boy won't ask for food as a damn president. I hear you. <laughs> hey, look here. I really do want to know what you think, you know, because an old boy from South Dakota that used to bomb however truck is may be smarter than the rest of these bozos out there. But what does Trump do? And one thing I was wondering just on the way to work this morning, can, a, can, a, can the state of South Carolina, for instance, loan money to an individual? And that's, that's, that's my first question. And the second one, can the state of South Carolina sue the Justice Department or sue New York City, whoever you sue over there, for uh, disenfranchising the voters of South Carolina? So my first question is, if all of the Republican states got together and made a low-interest loan to Donald Trump to pay this uh, bond so that he can appeal it, <clears throat> can that be done? And two, can the Republican states sue the Justice Department and sue these states like Atlanta you know, or, or these cities or whatever for disenfranchising their voters or whatever damn thing they want to call it? And then bring them down to South Carolina and put them through the same rigor they put they're, they're putting Trump through. I, I don't know. I just wondered what you thought about that, brother. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, I, I think there's some legalities. I think the state can lend money to a business. I mean, there are incentives. There are grants. There are grants that have to be. Well, I mean, they're not grants. They would be loans that have to be repaid. I mean, I don't think it comes out of the general fund. You've got the governor's closing fund. You've got economic development funds you got counties and state and federal agencies so yeah i mean i think stop small business administration i mean the government backstops some of those loans um i mean banks have criteria and when they get close to their lending limit they try to offshore some of the loans in the sba that means the sba is on the hook for a certain percentage of of the debt i mean that gets complicated that's in the world of sophisticated banking i don't think that the state could lend someone money to pay a, a fine. I mean, I, I don't think that. I think the state can loan someone. Well, I know the state can lend money to a business decided to come to South Carolina. In other words, let's just say um, Google wants to build a computer farm in South Carolina, and they're competing with Texas and Florida, North Carolina and Georgia and Alabama, and South Carolina comes up with a thing or some sort of um, arrangement that says, hey, we'll grant you $50 million dollars and will lend you $300 million at 2.5% interest, 3% interest. I'm just making up that number. I think that's illegal. I mean, I think the government can do that. Now, now once again, that's meddling in the affairs of the private sector. You know, um, philosophical conservatives don't like that, but there are a lot of things we don't like. I don't like NIL. I mean, I, I don't like this, um, this, this situation college athletics finds itself in. But you know what? Nobody said, hey, before we do this, let's call Ken and see if he likes it or not. I mean, very often you find yourself powerless in some of these situations. I just, I can't imagine a scenario where Republican-leaning states fund paying a fine for someone who has been legally, I mean, let's be honest, I mean, it's legal, I think. Uh, I don't think John Decker, well, I mean, John said, and John was very coy. 
John said, I've heard that the Trump team put a check in a box. I've heard that, but I've never seen a document produced that shows that. And, and, and once again, in the relationship between bank and business owner, I am extremely familiar with. I mean, I, I get that. I have lived that. I have been on, you know, the, the, the side of the table trying to get the best rate and the best deal and the best terms and, and arguing that my property is worth more than the bank thinks the property is worth. I never imagined I was violating a law because I always thought the bank would vet it. You know, if I say it's worth a million dollars, the bank says it's worth a, a half million. I mean, they're not taking me at my word. I'm not taking them at their word. I mean, it's really the, the, the kind of the inspiration of commerce, to be honest, the art of the deal. Didn't Trump write a book called The Art of the Deal? I mean, that's kind of reflective of the art of, of the deal. But, but when it comes to the government intervening, yes, the government can incentivize business to come to its state by giving and lending money. Philosophically, I'm opposed, but I, it's kind of NIL. I've accepted that that train has left the, the barn, that horse has left the proverbial station, and here we are, you know, dealing in kind of the, the new frontier of government slash business incorporated, I just don't under any circumstance see where a government could put taxpayer dollars at risk helping someone pay a civil fraud penalty that they've been legally convicted of. I mean, I think it's frivolous. I think it's crazy. I think it's scary. I think it will beginning, uh, begin the end officially of New York as a center of commerce. What if Wall Street moved south? Think of that. What if Wall Street to uproot and move south? Back in a few. 843-661-0937. We're back. Uh, Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar will be with us at 9.05 this morning. Um, Josh brings me a rundown. Some of these things are very timely. Some are not so timely. I found this interesting. I told Rev during the last break, I made a lot of bad decisions in my life. And the majority of those I've answered to. Some publicly, some not so publicly in my political life. But one of the best decisions I know I've ever made is about 20 years ago, I made a commitment to my health. My father passed away from a massive heart attack in the middle of the night, and I began doing a better job of taking care of myself. And I told Rev, I don't remember a week that I've not been in a gym five days in the last 20 years. Um, I ate like a fool on Sunday watching the race, but I get back to business on Monday. And, um, and I think that is an important decision for everybody to consider COVID really highlighted that. I mean, we saw comorbidities and we saw some of the issues that obesity brings about. If you're not taking real good care of yourself, there was a great debate, Rev. We covered it extensively on this radio show about younger people, what their risk factors were. Uh, do they need to take the vaccine or not? Um, we have with us this morning someone who was far more informed and versed, and I am a performance coach to elite athletes. Um, that would not be me. I was an athlete, but not an elite athlete. Um, co-founder of the Own It Coaching System, Justin, and I'm going to do the best I can with this last name, um, Rosslingshofer. Justin, did I, did I butcher the last <laughs> name, or did I do okay? No, you got it. You got it. Great honor to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. So according to the American College, ah, College of Cardiology, the percentage of young people having heart attacks has increased somewhere around 2% each year for the past 10 years. That's concerning and alarming, Justin. 
big time. And and I think what we have to do as a society is we have to, no matter what your political stance, I think that data highlights the importance of it's not just a COVID thing. We can't just chalk it up to COVID and keep our head in the sand. It's a lifestyle thing. It's how we're choosing to behave, how we're choosing to live, how we're choosing to operate our lives uh, on a day-to-day basis. And that's what's causing uh, the outcomes that, that we're ultimately seeing. So, Justin, I mean, I read about these miracle pills, and I read about the side effects, and I read about the latest, greatest diet that comes down the pike. Are we guilty of falling for, for some of these gimmicks when in reality being healthy is not going to always be as easy as some marketed as? 100%. You, you, I couldn't have said it better myself, to be honest with you, is um, what, what happens so often is we find ourselves in this trajectory of always trying to find the next latest fad that's going to get us out of where we are. And, uh, and the biggest thing about that is that when we actually start to realize that if our diet has a name or our workout has a name, it's probably the wrong one for you. And if we can actually come back to this concept of focusing on what you need, you as a unique individual, identifying what deficiencies you have at the cellular level, it is at that moment that we can start to actually dictate what it is that we need to do to optimize our health on a unique individual basis. Because what I need as a married man with no kids is very different than what a single man of four might need. So what did we learn during COVID? I mean, you're a, a performance coach. You um, you have a system that you would like to see people live by and go by and abide to. When COVID hit, we discussed the, 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 these age groups, these subsets of the American public. And, and I, I mean, I, I basically read and studied and, and understood if you're over the age of 65, it probably made sense to go get a COVID shot. But they were demanding of younger people to get COVID shots when I said there's a lot of questions we don't have answers to. Was there an official stance that someone like you took in regards to young people being vaccinated or not? I, I mean, for me, it was, I, I was, I was against it. I, I wasn't the one um, to go and get the shot. I was uh, really focused on what I could control, which was I could control how much sleep I got. I could control my fitness level. I could control the quality of food I ate. I could control minimizing my cellular um, micronutrient uh, deficiencies. I could control uh, the personalized level of supplementation, like customizing it to my needs so that I could, again, optimize my immune response. And so if I was able to uh, do that, then you know what? I've looked after everything, and I, now I've allowed my body to operate and respond the way in which God intended, which is, which is quite powerful. So, Justin, what is the first step? I mean, I, here's what I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong. I think people think about taking better care of themselves all the time. I don't think there's a day that goes by that someone over the age of 20 thinks about doing the right things relating to nutrition and health and wellness. They just don't act upon that. The, the great procrastination is what I call it. What is, what is something someone should do to begin down the road of, of, of becoming a more healthy you? Yeah, so it's a great question, and I don't. I, I, I almost don't think it's procrastination. I think it's almost po- uh, paralysis by too much information. 
Um, you're told to eat nothing but protein. You're told not to eat anything but vegetables. You're told to exercise really hard. You're told to exercise slow and for long times. You're told to um, have consistent sleep and wake times. You're told to um, go to bed at different times. Like these are the things that are so contradictory in this space. And the hard thing for people is to understand who's an actual health expert versus who is not. Because when you think about it, the health expert is sometimes wishy-washy because it's so personalized to that individual that they're talking to where the, the, sometimes the charlatan is like, no, this is what you have to do. This is the only way that is going to solve everything. And so for you as individuals, the biggest thing that I would do out there is you're, if there's a deep burning desire to step in and do something unique and different, find somebody who treats you as an individual, somebody who's helping you run your body off of data because data does not lie. Data is not emotional. Data is not impacted by feelings or thoughts or emotions, but rather it helps us understand what you need so we can be highly personalized, highly tailored and help you step into a situation that's going to be appropriate for you based on the context and uh, and lifestyle that you're ultimately seeking. That is well explained. Justin, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day. I appreciate you. And that, you know, that, that really and truly, I mean, the backstory of that, I mean, the only reason I'm interested in that, I think the, the realities of COVID, Josh, uh, because this is central to your being here, to be honest with you, had Josh agreed to take a shot probably never becomes no shot josh of wake up carolina fame correct that's correct i mean i mean walk through that story again for those that don't aren't familiar with with how you ended up here yeah so a couple years ago i was working on a different political talk uh radio talk show did you say lesser or different (laughs) different okay (laughs) uh in in charlotte north carolina but it was owned by a much larger company and they man this was in like 2021 so they started mandating the vaccine once the vaccine came out i applied for religious exemption and did not get it so they asked me to leave uh, or get the shot and i i'm i i struggled with it but uh, i decided not to get it okay let me put you on the record because we're talking about misleading right trump misled some of the um some of the banks i mean it's hard for me to believe he misled deutsche bank but anyway that's a story for another day. He misled the state government, and you don't mess with the government. So, Josh, when you applied for a religious exemption, mm-hmm. was it because you was the reason you didn't want to take the vaccine a religious matter, or your concern that somebody young like you didn't need to have experimental medication in their body? Did you mislead and use the religious exemption as kind of a um, a reason? I mean, it would have been harder for you to say, guys, I don't know, man. I'm young. I I don't have a lot of issues. I'm concerned about what this experimental drug may or may not bring along. I mean, did you you hide behind the religious exemption? Yes. Okay. I mean, I I, I always thought you did. No one's asked me that. I mean, I always thought you did. I mean, when you said that, I said to myself, I just didn't want to take the shot. I said it was the mark of the beast, which I don't think it was. but, but, But your father is a doctor. Yes. Um, medically trained, mm-hmm. a graduate of med school. Your father, you've told me this, your father advised you against taking the vaccine. He did. Your father thought the chances of you getting COVID and something dramatic changing about your health were less than if you take the vaccine. I mean, the vaccine could introduce more serious challenges to 25-year-old Josh than COVID did. And we never allowed that to be part of the debate. I mean, that, that, that's bizarre to me. I mean, I understand Pfizer's influence. I understand Big Pharma. I mean, I we've tried to discuss that 
to the nth degree. I understand going after someone because you don't like them being president. And it's almost like mandating young people become vaccinated is in the weirdest way imaginable similar to trying to bankrupt someone because they're running for president. I mean, I think we all accept the excesses of government to some degree. Maybe they've conditioned us to accept some of the excesses of government. So if you're over the age of 60, we're going to mandate you that you get a shot. Philosophically, I'm going like, that's crazy. You can't do that in America. But then I'm thinking about, yeah, but the common good, they're over 60. Odds are, and I'm talking about odds, odds are there's a chance they have more health issues than someone 21, 22, 23. But, but that's just the day that, I mean, they lost me. I mean, I realized this was a power grab. It was a, um, I mean, it was a unique opportunity in capitalism. It was a chance for government to enhance the profitability of someone who had been very gracious and kind. I'm talking about Big Pharma, uh, the number of contributions that Big Pharma had made to elected officials. I mean, that was the day they cashed in. And if you really think about it, I don't know how much Pfizer made. I mean, they made more than Exxon in one quarter, and Exxon prints money. Uh, we we kind of know that some of the most successful financial quarters in the history of mankind lie at the doorsteps of Exxon. But Pfizer made more than Exxon did because the government mandated as a requirement for you to be a citizen, a member of the military, an employee of a certain business, get on an airplane, go to a concert. The government demanded of perfectly healthy 20-year-old men and women to take a drug that didn't exist a year ago. And, that, I mean, I, I know this is a weird cross-reference, but isn't that kind of like the government deciding to meddle in the affairs of one of the prominent banks in America and one of the, one of the prominent businesses in America? I mean, how many businessmen or women have never heard the name Deutsche Bank? I mean, the majority of us have. I've never banked with Deutsche Bank. They'd probably laugh at me if I carried my financial statement in there. I mean, you know, they're kind of known to bank some of the big, sophisticated business deals. But, but isn't that kind of a reflection of the acceptance? And this goes back to political activism. We asked a question yesterday, and I think we could do a week's worth of shows. In the, in the perfect world that none of us live in, where would political activism be? Our general manager is, is, a, is a devout religious man. He's a Christian. I mean, he's a devoutly religious Christian. And he stuck his head in the door yesterday, and we debated faith, family, and friends. And I, and I, I, I leveled with you. I mean, I have a hard time putting faith before family because I see my family. I love my family. I help my family. My family helps me. We're in this crazy thing called life together. My faith is uh, I can't see it. I mean, it's, sometimes I wonder about it. I mean, I'm always, hey, where is my kid? They are here. Uh, what is their cell number? There's a certain definition there and, and, and a certain earthliness about that relationship. Um, we can feel, see, touch. But my faith can become ambiguous. I don't want to say uncertain because I'm not uncertain at all about my faith. But I don't have a cell phone number. I don't have an email address. So I confided in, in our listeners that, yeah, at times I put my family ahead of my faith. I know that's not scripturally sound. I know that theologically that's not the way it's supposed to be. But, but I'll, I'll, I'll accept that that's the, the very imperfect way I deal with, with that imperfect scenario. 
and, 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 and once again, in that weird way, I've accepted the rules of politics as a bit uncertain. Um, but to what degree? I mean, to, to what degree do we allow 91 indictments, taking someone off the ballot? Dear friend of mine, we were sharing texts yesterday. I mean, he's one of the friends I had to apologize to because I got real aggressive and real extreme about my opinion on this New York uh, case, this civil fraud case that Trump is dealing with. And I send kind of a mea culpa, my bad man. I mean, you know, you guys don't, you're not as intensely involved in this world as I am. And I kind of sort of drug you into it. And in his text response to me, he said, man, I'm just trying to not allow politicians, Democrats or Republicans, to dictate my happiness in life. I'm not. I get that. I think that is a very wise and smart thing to do. Find some happiness if a Democrat's the president. Find some happiness if a Republican is the president. But I don't think we can be dismissive of political activism. I don't think you can find happiness in life, no matter who the president is, and not care at all about who the president is. I mean, if we do that, what do we end up? Okay, Josh wants to find happiness and contentment in life. Who doesn't? I mean, join the club. Every son of a gun, man or woman listening to my voice desires to find some peace and happiness and contentment and a degree of success and a little bit of financial security. I mean, that, that's, that's what we're all striving for and shooting for. And I don't believe that the president being a Democrat or the president being a Republican or the Congress being supportive of Ukraine funding or, or in defiance of Ukraine funding, I don't believe that that should dictate your happiness or not. But I don't think we as human beings responsible for a self-governed nation can escape the reality of political activism. I mean, I'll go step the obligation of political activism. I think it's okay to search for peace and contentment no matter who the president is. But I think you've got to give a rat's ass who the president is. I've got, I think you've got to care whether we send money to Ukraine or not, whether we make 20-year-olds get vaccinated or not, whether we think it's okay for a judge in New York to go after a businessman who they've never gone after before now that he's a viable candidate for president and may upset the apple cart and disrupt the machine that they have built. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Friendly reminder, scheduled to appear at 905, Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar. He's their senior strategist and pollster. He'll be with us. And, I mean, we'll hear it from someone you can, as much as you can trust a pollster, Robert is one of the few that have gotten it closer to right than anybody else has in the Trump era of unpredictable American uh, politics. Yeah, he has some credibility, and we're lucky to have him call the show pretty regularly. Robert will tell you, and and we'll try to. I, I may try to drag him. He don't like to do this in the public, but Robert and those built a mouse trap, and the mouse trap found the Trump voter and accounted for the Trump voter better than all other mouse traps. Robert has confessed to me, I'm not sure what else we're good at. I mean, that's the concern he has. You know, th- th- there's a there's a a way you poll. There's a science behind polling. I mean, they follow that science. But they've added some elements within traditional polling that they believe find the Trump voter, the true Trump voter, better than anybody else. The Trump lean. You know what the Trump lean is, Josh? The Trump lean is 
when you are in a dignified social setting and you've had too many alcoholic beverages and you ask out loud, hey, who are you voting for in the presidential election? Now, I'm not talking about at AA Builders. I mean, they'll yell across the building, drop. I'm talking about in refined settings. <laughs> if you find yourself in a refined in civilized setting, society, yeah, in a bit civilized society, building <laughs> truck beds isn't civilized. You don't believe me? Ask the National Review of the Wall Street Journal. Um, the good old boys don't deserve to be counted. Mm. It's kind of what they're they're telling you. So at Double A Builders, if you yell across the building, "Who are you voting for?" Everybody yells Trump. But if you find yourself, Josh. When you're not executing your religious exemption, when you find yourself in a refined setting and someone says, man, they've had a little too much to drink, and they'll, they'll ask loud, you know, country club, clubhouse, um, a debutante ball, you know, one of these Carol King concerts, you know, where, where, where polite society carries the day, um, and somebody's had a little too much to drink, they'll say, who are you voting for? You got to lean, Josh. You can't say loud. You got to lean and drop. Because you don't want to diminish your standing in those and, social And you'll look around settings. to see who might be listening yeah, before well, you I mean, say that, it. That's bro. right. And, and, and if you're really nervous, you'll lie. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't decided. Um, I'll tell you this. That, that's one of the amazing realities of this situation we find ourselves in with Trump. It's, it's those who aren't loud and proud. I mean, you go to Surfside this morning. Rev and I saw Fox News is broadcasting from Surfside Beach, one of these breakfast pancake the houses. Egg. Yeah, the Golden Egg Pancake House in Surfside. And, I mean, they're unabashed. I mean, they're unapologetic. They are for Trump come hell or high water. But if you get into the more refined settings, you got to kind of – you got to find them, Josh. You got to know where they are. And Robert and those have built a mousetrap that has been able to find the Trump lean – you lean in and you whisper, Trump. Let's go to the phone. Brian in Florence. Hi, Brian. You're on. Hey, guys. Um, generally, after I listen to your show, I watch uh, Stephen Crowder. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or not. Oh, yeah. He is, uh, he, he really became a, a pretty good voice of the conservative. And he's certainly well studied. But uh, yesterday he had a uh, topic that really kind of shocked me. But then again, it doesn't surprise me. When you go and give blood now, the Red American Red Cross actually asks you a question on your form if you are vaccinated. And it's not to say you can't donate blood. Is if you are a person who's been vaccinated, they may not accept your blood. That's scary. A lot of people got that vaccine. A lot of blood donors. That's very scary. There, there's no doubt about it. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. There. I mean, we we questioned with no scientific foundation at all. The majority of our resistance to the vaccine, Josh, was not religious exemptions, but rather skepticism of how much money Big Pharma had contributed to people who represent our federal government and whether we were getting the entire story or not. I mean, that, that was my, it's always been my concern. I am a contrarian. I am a cynic. <laughs> I am a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I, you know, I am. It is what it is. I was, I was not always this. It's a little bit like they gave me no choice. I mean, they turned me into one. I didn't turn myself into contrarian or a cynic or a conspiracy theorist. They did that. I think my natural inclination, Reb, would have been contrarian in nature and a bit cynical about what's going on around me. 
but I've never, ever, ever considered myself remotely a conspiracy theorist until Trump and then the, the, the pandemic and some of the statistical anomalies that I tried to understand about the 2020 presidential election. And, and all of a sudden, it's brought to you by Pfizer, it's brought to you by Boeing. I mean, I always expected a relationship, a fairly cozy relationship with big business and government. But I think COVID was the, I don't know, that's the moment that I said, wow. I mean, there, there, there really aren't any guardrails now. And for me, like it was on the vaccine, I just kept thinking, man, they are, they are pushing this so hard. That's what got my attention. It's like they really, really are, I mean, unnaturally pushing this. I mean, Rev, not only unnaturally pushing a narrative, they excluded people like Dr. Robert Malone. Right. And, and, and then you, you hear the stories about you post something on social media and they block you. Well, you I mean, can't even ask and, a question. That's where I was headed. Dr. Robert Malone is one of probably a dozen people who are responsible for, you ready, inventing the science behind mRNA vaccines. I mean, he's one of a dozen people on this planet that understands genome sequencing and, and some of the others that I have no clue about. Robert Malone posted an hour-long video, and he basically explained why he's skeptical, why he's nervous about you know, drug companies saying there are no side effects and the government pushing this vaccine on 50-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 10-year-olds and, and infant children. I mean, I'm five, six, seven-year-old. They say, now we got a booster ready for you, five-year-old. And, and Robert Malone, once again, if I'm on Twitter giving my opinion about vaccines and the efficacy or effectiveness, I mean, listen or not, I mean, take me for what it's worth. I'm a... A guy who served in office, been in business, knows how to read, knows how to study, has a few influential people he can contact. But I'm not an mRNA scientist. I'm not a virologist. I'm not an uh, an epidemiologist. I mean, don't don't pay me any attention on what kind of decision you did. But Robert Malone is one of the most credible people in that world. That world's small anyway. I mean, as small as that world is, Malone is a formidable figure in that world. And when Malone put out a video that said, hey, man, I mean, I helped invent this science, and I have a lot of questions about what we're doing. No soup for you. I mean, they deplatformed one of the guys that invented the science behind mRNA. How do you not turn into conspiracy theorist? I mean, it's almost like if you've got an IQ over 100, you automatically become a conspiracy theorist. And that's when all of this craziness happened. And to be honest with you, that's probably the reason that every time one of these charges go against Donald Trump, every time one of these problems arise in his political slash professional world, he gains momentum. They've lost the trust of the American people. And one of the main things they've lost, and I tweeted about this yesterday, you can lie to people if nobody can disagree. You can mislead people if nobody is allowed to disagree. And when the media became a monolith and the liberal left, oh, that's unfair. That's unfair to say that. When the power brokers, when the uniparty, when the self-appointed masters of the universe compa- uh, controlled the narrative, there was no competing voice. There was no contrasting opinion. I mean, everybody walked that way. Why? Because nobody's telling you to walk another way. And very few of us had the gumption to walk our own way, to blaze our own trail, to walk to the beat of our own drum. We just don't. I mean, we have been, on average, conditioned to conform. 
And it's a little bit monkey see, monkey do. And if all the major networks are saying, hey, you need to get the vaccine, no matter how old you are, it encourage your kid to get that vaccine. And there's no people like Robert Malone allowed to participate in the debate and say, hey, before you get your kid vaccinated, let's talk about some uncertainties. Let's talk about some things we don't know. But, but what's happening in America today, and we did a show last week or the week before about it, the government having the moral authority is not based on whether they're telling you the truth or not. If the government's moral authority derived from them telling you the truth, that's fine. I mean, that's a healthy democracy. But it was not based on telling you the truth, but rather controlling the narrative. And if somebody wants to tell something counter to the narrative, you, 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 you just disallow that voice from being heard. And thank God, I was thinking about this driving over this morning. Who are the most important people in the world today? Elon Musk. I mean, I don't know how many people go to Mars. I, I don't know how many people buy electric cars. But I know that Twitter gives you a fair shake. I mean, they, some days are more liberal on Twitter. Some days are more conservative on Twitter. Some days I think Twitter helps the cause. Some days I think Twitter hurts the cause. But I don't believe that when I tweet, there's some content moderator or censor with, with, with a kind of a list of words. I mean, I'm sure it's an algorithm. It's computerized. It's not some dude or some woman. I mean, they're managing a computer system that is based on algorithms that says, hey, this guy is sympathetic toward Trump. He gets to the bottom of the pile. I mean, I think Elon Musk buying X or Twitter that is now X is one of the most monumental moments in the establishment, the globalist, the new world orderist not being able to control the narrative. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. David in the PD. Good morning. Yeah, I was going to say, Ken, I guess you would have what I call an old school business model. And I, I agree with it. You know, you take care of your employees and your customers, your stockholders do well, and then you pay your taxes. And today, it's the, the, the businesses of America is based off of government and then stock manipulation. So that's, that's sad. But uh, stand for America. I, I've got one of their mailers in my hand looking at it right now. It's got a picture of downtown Charleston. And stand for America, I think that's Nikki's pack, correct? That's, correct. That's her main pack. And the whole gist of this whole mailer, I'm looking at it, is old, out-of-touch old men. They've got a picture of Trump and Biden. And, again, it's downtown Charleston. And she, I'll give her credit. She's done a good job. She was on CNN last night. I'm embarrassed to say that I watched this. But I mean, she's trying to get to that person that did not vote. And this is the first time I can remember that the Democrats went first. But that's her strategy. Um, and then she's looking after the long game. When she called you last week, I think she was in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, she's looking at that Texas, California, Super Tuesday. It's just a matter of time well, when that money is it's going to have to run out. And the numbers will run out for her in uh, mid-March. So, uh, hope to Haley comes on and explains it much better than I just did. Thank you. Thank you. The one thing I think I can offer to the debate that Robert can't, there are some political people who catch breaks early in their political existence and they believe they're entitled to catch those breaks forever. It's, it's almost like uh, you're the golden child. You're the favored child. You're the, uh, I mean, you're in families. I mean, there's this family dynamic that everybody has, and 
whether it's spoken or not. I mean, at times you sarcastically speak about it. Well, they love you more than they love me. I came home drunk two nights. You never came home drunk. I mean, if mama told you to be home at 9 o'clock, came at 8.45, told me 9, I came home at 10. You know, they, you know, they just love you more than they. And, and it's kind of the golden child theory. And, and the majority is you do what you're supposed to, and things work out. You don't. Complications ensue. There's a little bit of me that wonders, and I could never get an honest answer to this because Nikki would never give me an honest answer. If she did, consider it seriously. Is Nikki, has Nikki tricked herself into believing that because things have worked out until now, they'll always work out? Can you accept failure if you've never politically failed? Nikki came out of nowhere in 2010 and got elected governor. Nobody saw that more up close and personal than I did. I mean, there, there are two people on the planet that can say they served as lieutenant governor when Nikki Haley was governor, Henry Master and, and yours truly. So I saw an up close, uh, you know, I mean, I saw it as well as anybody right before my very eyes. And I, and I saw someone who didn't expect to win, win. I saw someone's political ascend accelerate in a way that very few have. I saw her get reelected. I was not there, but I saw her get reelected. I saw her get plucked by the Trump administration to be ambassador to the United Nations. I saw her leave the United Nations as she decided to and become a member of the Boeing board. I saw her or read where she had purchased a couple of million dollar home in Kiowa Island. So imagine in a decade, you go from being a secondary third tier candidate for governor of South Carolina to a $3 million home on Kiowa Island. Everything went her way. Every break she caught. It's like a surfer, the good waves. And all of a sudden things don't look that well. And you can be in denial. I mean, you can honestly say there's no way this is true. I mean, I'm Nikki Haley. Things have always worked out for me. Do they, do they not know the steps I've taken to get here? How do you tell me I'm going to lose my home state by 20 or 25? Who do they think they are? I mean, I'm Nikki Haley. Look at what I've done in the last 12 or 13 years. Who do they think they are telling me that things aren't going my way this time? Well, I mean, the data says they aren't, but nobody's voted yet. Well, I mean, we had early voting, but I mean, the, the contest has not been decided yet. I don't know that there's anything to that, but there's something about me that believes Nikki could be somewhat in denial of what lie ahead. Let's go to the phone. Daphne in Dillon. Good morning. Good morning, guys. I have always been amazed at Nikki because her, she doesn't even explain what she would do to straighten anything out. Her only platform was when she was governor, I deserve it. I'm a woman. I'm a minority. And it seems now that she doesn't even know which side she's on. But uh, nonetheless, what I called to talk about was that if any of us, any of us, took into consideration that we uh, won't bother with objecting to things because it's not happening to us, it's happening to our neighbors. So as long as they're not at our front door, we're just going to be quiet and not say anything. Uh, I wanted to do an example of how locally 
they could really destroy someone like you, Ken, or someone like me. For instance, you have made it known that you're a businessman and that you invest in, uh, like, convenience stores and things like that. For instance, if you and your partners wanted to raise a million dollars and uh, you decide to go to the bank and you say, well, I'm going to put up my Polly's Island uh, house as collateral. You make out the application. You put at the bottom of it that you think it's worth $400,000, and you recommend that the bank do their own assessment, which is full disclosure, and the bank goes and appraises your house, and they loan you $300,000 on on your business venture. Later, eight to ten years later, someone in Florence uh, that is a solicitor or a DA or whatever decides he doesn't like you, and he brings a case against you and tells you that you violated some law that you don't even know what in God's name they're talking about. So they then deny you a jury trial. The judge says, Ken's guilty. And they fine you a million and a half dollars. You have nowhere to go to get that money because the bank now is prohibited from loaning you money. So they take all your property. That's the bottom line. You speak out against any of the elites and the establishment, and they go after you. And another example of that is the guy over 10 years ago that turned in a memo to the FBI and was an FBI-paid informant is now under arrest. So there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. I fight authority, and authority always wins. I've argued and contended that that's bad for America. Authority needs to lose more than its fair share. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, I've always maintained that politics is a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of innuendo. There's a lot of storylines. There's a lot of good candidate, bad candidate, you know, motivated electorate, non-motivated electorate. What are the campaign issues? Where does the candidate stand on some of these issues? All that goes into the, I don't know, the, um, the potpourri of American politics. But at the end of the day, our next guest convinced me overwhelmingly that it's about math. I mean, it really, I mean, everything goes into that story. There's no doubt about it. There's a candidate. There's a story. There's messaging. There's an infrastructure. There's funding. There's advice. There, I mean, there, there are a lot of things, but it really boils down to the math. And as far as the math in a Republican primary, I don't know anybody better than Robert Cahaley. And I mean that sincerely. I don't know anybody better than Robert is in Trafalgar today at finding Republican primary voters, the likely that they will participate and what the eventual outcome will be. Robert Cahaley, a senior, he's a senior strategist or the senior strategist at Trafalgar is with us. Robert, good morning. How are you? 
I'm great. Well, you should be with that ass-kissing introduction <laughs> I just gave you. Um, but but no, uh, but, but I, I know you, you said you don't know anybody that does that, and I'm like, Tim, we got to introduce you to people. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. So so Robert, we're two days away from a primary. One candidate is spending money like you can't imagine. The other is uh, kind of hit and miss. A little bit of advertising, several appearances. But but nothing has really moved the math. Is that fair, Robert? I mean, nothing has really significantly impacted what the polls say. Or is that the case? Well, what I would tell you is the first two weeks of this race, when it was basically Haley un, uh, unequaled in advertising and appearances, was probably the Trump low point. Uh, and I would... I would tell you that number was probably it moved the margin down to maybe the teens between the two of them. But then, and we could see it actually in, because we, we were just kind of tracking for our own purposes. We could see it each time he did one of those big rallies. After the first one in Conway, uh, we saw a tick, uh, actually a big tick up. Then uh, his weakest area was Charleston. When he went down to Charleston, more ticks up. And so the more things Trump did, the more he kind of moved the ball back to him. Now, we've always been very, um, well, not very. Compared to the other people, we were a little bearish on this race. Uh, those who are saying, oh, he's going to win by 40, he's going to win by 30. We were always thinking it was going to be in the 20s somewhere. It was going to settle out. Uh, our last poll had a margin of uh, 29 uh, with undeciders that could come down because, frankly, what we know is people who are undecided tend to either not vote or vote against Trump. Nobody's undecided on Trump. It's just that he, he just doesn't – undeciders don't break his way. But he doesn't ever need them. But it, it's very difficult in a Republican primary to undecided Republicans to come to him. So we think he's – we think he's going to do it spectacular win uh i'd I'd tell you uh, we haven't finished our last tracking but i mean it could be 25 points i mean when you beat an incumbent governor by 25 a former governor by 25 points uh who claims the left popular that's debatable but uh when you beat someone like that by that kind of a margin i mean that's pretty solid that's pretty amazing actually Robert, it seems to us, and I'm talking about me and our listeners, it seems to us that every time they go after Trump, and I'm talking about indictments and, and you know, whether or not he's on the ballot, and now the civil fraud case in New York, it seems to increase the energy around Trump. It seems to make him an even more formidable candidate. Do the polls show that? Once again, that's a feeling I have, a sensation that I experience. But do's the, do, do the polls reflect that? Actually, somebody I know who's pretty high up in the Haley campaign actually told me uh, of a voter they ran into who was solidly behind Haley until that verdict came out with the $300 million, whatever it was, 400 500 And that person said, you know, I think Haley would be better, but I just, I just want to tell them to go to the word I can't say on the radio show. Um, 
and I'm angry. And and the best way to do that is just vote for Trump and stick it up their ear. And, and yeah, there's a lot of that. People are just so sick of it. You know, I've said if I were on their side, I would have gone after Trump with one case on one thing. The multitude of cases just absolutely have killed their credibility. And, and, you know, the thing is, maybe these things are all justified, but they were not all justified in election year. None of this happened until he announced the run for president and then all this calamity at one time, which is why, you know, if I'm Trump, I would look out to Biden and I'd say, it, you know, you talking about um, – being sorry that the uh, Russian opposition leader died in prison is rich, considering you're you're trying to put your opposition leader in prison, and that would be your happiest dream. Robert, what is what is the motivation of the donors who continue to fund Haley's campaign, despite what the math clearly shows? I mean, these folks did become wealthy by being stupid. Why are they still so heavily investing? in a campaign that just simply isn't going to defeat Donald Trump in the primary. Is there some, I mean, is there some event they're planning for? Is there some convention? I mean, what are we missing? Well, if you look at who has really kind of moved into the main space as of her donors, they are more people who want to see Trump damaged. They are people who are hoping that the longer Haley stays in this race, the more damage he can bring to Trump, and therefore the weaker Trump will be in the fall. I mean, we're talking some of the major Haley donors are the who's who of Wall Street that have been opposing all of, have been opposing Trump from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, that, I mean, we when you look at that group of, uh, CEOs that gave the uh, leader of China the uh, standing ovation, you're looking at a lot of Haley donors. Will those folks come home, Robert? That's the question that concerns me. No, I mean, I- no we're talking about people who don't want Trump. We're talking about the Wall Street types. But have historically supported Republicans, correct? Yeah, but that's, I think we're in a, we're in a past, that's that. That is so far away from today's politics because now the Wall Street are the ones pushing ESG. They're the ones pushing all this globalism. And so, no, they're not coming home to the America First movement. (laughs) They don't feel – in many ways, what the Republican Party has done is they have traded the Reagan Democrats and Perot voters for the richest people in America who felt home the Republicans. And, and frankly, there, there was more than blue-collar people we picked up than, you know, the people who have their own jets that we lost. So, so campaign donations are less important today than they were two, three, four election cycles ago? They're not less important because it all goes to one thing. It all goes to attention. And the one thing Trump has always had in spade is his ability to attract attention without spending money. And when you look at him, you say, okay, let's say Trump does a rally in a town. Now, rallies are expensive, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. But if you look at the residual 
ripples of attention and coverage that he gets in the town the day before, the days after on all the local media, which is what people watch more than even national media. When you look at all the attention you get when you bring four or 5,000 people into an arena, get them all charged up and send them back in the community, that is so much more valuable than even dropping a million dollars on TV in that area. I want to talk to you about two separate things. You've maintained and been very consistent that you think Trump, I mean, we don't vote for vice presidents, but we do have, I mean, both of these, we think eventual nominees. I mean, I don't have any idea what happened to the Democrat Party. If you want to give your opinion there, that's fine. But there's a man in serious decline dealing with a lot of cognitive issues that have Democrats doubting whether he's the horse to ride come November or not. But you've maintained that this vice presidential pick may be a little more important than history says, and you've said Trump really needs to think female. Is that still the case? Well, I don't think he needs to think specifically female. I think he needs to think of one female, and this is the one I, I, you know, if anything, I don't really, I have never discussed this with her. I'm just simply advocating because I know her politics. I think he needs to be looking at Marsha Blackburn. Because not, it's not just that she's female. Female's good. But she's an older female. She doesn't make any, any other females uncomfortable. She's, in fact, what a lot of uh, women uh, who would like to see their, their daughter or granddaughter go into this type of field. When they look at her, they say, that's the kind of, that's the kind of leader I want my, my daughter, my granddaughter to be. She also, because she has such great respect in the Senate, is would be powerful at rallying her, uh, rallying, you know, votes in the Senate as vice president, which is a very important job. Uh, she comes from a state that would most definitely not elect a Democrat and would even appoint uh, the governor to appoint a Republican, so that the seat is at risk. Uh, and she's also old enough that she's not going to run for president afterwards more than likely. And so what happens is everybody sees this as a four years and then we start again. Getting getting everybody, all the organizations, all the other candidates buy in thinking, hey, this is only a four year trip. Whereas a lot of the time when you look at a vice president who may want to be a president after, you say, Hey, I might be locked out of the nomination for twelve years if you're looking at it as a potential candidate. So I, I think she offers a lot of good things. Uh, you know, she, Trump had talked about somebody who, who can define things and, uh, you know, makes strong points. And you look at, I mean, who's the, who's the one who asked the Supreme Court justice, can you define a woman? This lady is, Marsha Blackburn is in the right place and has the right makeup to be a great vice president. Interesting. Christy Noam, I mean, I can ask you this. I wouldn't ask anybody else, but. Christy, know I'm too much of a babe. I'm with the babe factor coming to play there. Uh, yes, sir. Okay, we'll leave it there. We'll we'll leave it there. I, <laughs> I, I, I did I, I did enough polling on Kelly Leffler, who was an absolutely spectacular person, and saw how petty so many of the voters were based on looks. I, I did. I mean, I already knew that, but I did enough polling in that race to tell you there was a lot of specific issues people had people i should say people a lot of the ladies we talked to were not so 
pleasant in describing, um, you know, her. And it was more more jealousy than anything negative. Like, you know, just they wish they were, or you know, you could tell they were kind of jealous and stuff. But no, I think that's I think it's probably a problem, Christy. Too much of a babe. Imagine that. Okay, last question, and I think this is the most important question. As we as Trump wins the nomination, it begins building a, a team to win a general election. It still seems to me, Robert, and I went back and read a, a lot of things. I mean, I've, I've heard you say some of these things. I've read a lot of other things. We've had about 33 special elections in the Trump era, and it seems to me special elections would be a pretty good predictive of, of turnout. The Democrats are consistently overperforming in these special elections, and it's all about these these tax exempt nonprofits and the changing of the rules and regulations of voting in certain states and the expanded use of unsupervised mail in ballots. It seems to me that the Democrats have completely dominated that aspect of modern campaigning. Please tell me I'm reading more into that than reality suggests. Yeah, I, I think you're reading a little more into it because, but, uh, yes, I think all of that has a factor. But I think the other factor um, is take one in New York just happened. The Republicans got outspent two to one. You look at the Virginia races. Paul Glenn Youngkin had to raise $6 million himself. No Republican Party helped himself. Democrat Party poured over, and their affiliates poured over $20 million in the race. The Republican Party raises plenty of money, but we're getting outspent in these races. Rona McDaniel threw, you know, these four of these fancy debates and had all our friends there and spent a whole week in each town and got her nails done and all that nonsense and spent a bunch of money, but when it came time to win the races and at the uh, mid-year in, in 2023, nothing. I mean, where was the Republican Party? It was nowhere. Now, I'm hopeful with these new changes that are going to be coming into the party. I think it's going to have some great people that are really necessary, and they're going to make some big changes. And I hope that they will, as the most major change, focus on winning elections. Because I've you've heard me say before, the problem with the Democrats and Republicans, they raise the same amount of money. But Republican greed gets in the way of victory. And Democrat, Democrats bend the rules on their way to, to victory themselves. Like, they get there because they bend the rules, and Republicans don't get there because of the greed of the people involved and the graph, the grift that keeps happening again and again and again. So, so Robert, if that is so chronic, and you've been very consistent in that, you told me that the first day that you and I had a conversation about politics. If that's the case, I'm not asking you who, but what sort of person does the RNC consider to lead it into this new era of American politics? Well, I think for the, for the short term, um, uh, getting the gentleman from North Carolina who's the party chairman. It's a solid move. Uh, he is very, 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 very ruthlessly focused on election integrity. And I think that's where the Republicans have got to go first. Uh, if you've heard uh, Lara Trump on TV, 
uh, you know, she has buy-in. This is her. This is her. This is her. Um, I guess it's her. That, what is it? Father-in-law. Yeah, father-in-law. Um, and so when she says, "I'm going to look inside the RNC and I'm going to make sure that every dollar gets spent properly," that's a good sign because this stuff happens with you know people rigging bids and doing kickbacks and setting up shell companies to do the same service and take a little bit off the top. Uh, that's how this stuff happens. If you have somebody focused on that and trying to prevent that and some of the leadership of the Trump campaign in the middle of it, trying to make sure that every, you know, there's bang for buck, I think that that will help start it. Now, in, in the future, I, there's a few things that will help it. One, uh, we ought to say if you work for the committees, and I mean the RNC, the uh, uh, the uh, NRCC, which is the congressional arm, the senatorial committee for the U.S. Senate, if you work in those groups or the Republican governors, Republican AGs, or whatever, then you, just like if you're a lobbyist you have, and you are a congressman, you have to wait a certain amount of time. I think you can't you can't go right to work in politics. You, know, you have to take you have, you have to be cooling off period, and also to make every single person sign something that says I will not take seek or outside income, and I understand that it would be you know fraud if I do. I mean there are there there are simple rules you could do to stop some of this. I think Robert Kahaley would be a good to. RNC chairman, but he's got too good a gig where he is. Okay, Robert, last question, and this is a yes or no. All I need is a yes or no. Saturday in South Carolina, Trump over 60. It's more a factor of where Haley is. I'll give you the margin. Okay. Margin, mid-20s. Okay, fair enough. Robert Haley, senior strategist, Trafalgar. Um, thank you, man. Appreciate it. You are a, um, a, a, a voice of knowledge. I mean, I'm a loud voice. I don't know how much knowledge I provide, but you always come in and um, – and then, you know, the kind of cleanup on aisle two by Robert <laughs> Kahaley. Thank you, my man. Appreciate it. Hey, always going to talk to you, and I don't think there was a mess to clean up, so everything was fine. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> Appreciate it, my man. Yes, sir. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. I feel weird asking somebody else what might happen in the South Carolina primary because I feel like I have a pretty good idea <laughs> what's going to happen in the South Carolina primary. But in the spirit of professionalism, I want to make sure Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern, who is in our nation's capital, gives us a kind of a national media perspective of the few days until the South Carolina primary, and does Nikki Haley have a chance whatsoever in her home state? Jared, good morning. How are you? Well, I was going to ask you all of those questions. Uh, <laughs> start see. With... The, 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 the <laughs> short answer is no. The long well, answer is hell Trump, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yesterday, former President Trump said that he was going to win bigly. Um, and I think, <laughs> I, think that's, um, uh, uh, I, I think that's probably a fair read of, of what we're seeing in, in South Carolina, right? But I think the bigger question <clears throat> for Nikki Haley is what comes next. She made clear, as you saw this week, that uh, after the, the election, the primary election on Saturday, she will be a candidate on Sunday. She is not going anywhere. Uh, she is going to run this race uh, through Super Tuesday and beyond, she says. And listen, Nikki Haley has the uh, financial resources, uh, the campaign resources to do that. Um, she, you know, South Carolina is not a make or break state for her, at least from kind of a fundraising and, and campaign resources perspective. Um, I will be interested to see in South Carolina. I think what I'm going to be looking at is um, 
you know, what are the margins looking like? Is she able to to show that maybe there is a ceiling of support for Trump or what is her kind of potential uh, ceiling of support in a state like South Carolina? Um, and also, I'll be curious kind of how the I mean, it's not critically important, but that how the delegates shake out. South Carolina, as you know, it's not a winner take all state, but it can be right. So, um, you know, how does Trump do in kind of cleaning up in, in those uh, various congressional districts? Jared, the, the unusual part of this race has been, and, and once again, Nikki and I got elected in 2010 together. I mean, she got elected governor. I got elected lieutenant governor. Uh, I end up with a radio show. She's up an ambassador and a former governor and all these, <laughs> and all these auspicious um, notifications. Anyway, it seems to me that South Carolina is the state. It, it's rebellious in nature. It walks to the beat of its own drum. We're a little offended that Texas may decide to secede before we do. But 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 that generality does lead me to believe that when Trump has legal issues, South Carolina feels the need to defend him. When there's a civil fraud case, when there's a, a conviction or an indictment or taking him off the ballot one or another, I don't know, maybe I'm reading more into this, but it seems Iowa to some degree reacted to that. New Hampshire to some South Carolina will resoundingly react to defending Donald Trump in the weirdest way imaginable. And I think that's why Nikki loses her home state by somewhere around 25 percentage points. I think South Carolina is not out of step with a lot of Republican voters right now, right? You've seen as these uh, indictments have come down and, and these civil cases have, have wrapped up and these massive uh, fines that, that the former president has had to pay, uh, support only grow, at least among base Republican voters. Where you do see some of that uh, shrinking is uh, among independents, um, especially, you know, in polling suggested if there were a conviction, that might change the outlook. And that's been Nikki Haley's argument, right? I mean, she's kind of defined herself as the alternative to Trump, the candidate that is better positioned for uh, November, the candidate that isn't going to have to spend all of summer in, in various courtrooms. And also, I have heard her in recent days kind of chastise the uh, campaign of Trump for how his money is having to be spent now, especially that super PAC pouring in to legal defenses. That doesn't leave as much resources for a lot of down-ticket support that presidential nominees are usually expected to, to help with, right? Um, the, old, the old, you know, sort of coattail adage. And so, again, I don't think that's going to change the trajectory in South Carolina. Um, I'd be curious to kind of see what her message sounds like and what that campaign schedule looks like you know, starting on Sunday and, and into these Super Tuesday states. And, Jared, I'll lastly add, as a local and somebody who's lived here his entire life and ran statewide in this state, there was a day that South Carolina was heavily influenced, especially in the primary, by the evangelical Christian. I mean, the upstates, what we call mm -hmm. the Bob Jones influence of the upstate, um, it's changed. I mean, we went from 3.5 million people to 5.5 million in a nanosecond. And it's largely right. people who didn't grow up here, weren't born here, they, they, they basically, I mean, we're not locals on our coast any longer. Um, and, I, and I made a recommendation they should play the Michigan-Ohio State football game at Coastal Carolina Stadium <laughs> so people don't have to drive so far to cheer for their, for their favorite team. But this will be a first election of what I call Giuliani Republicans along the coast, not anywhere near as evangelical, fairly fiscal conservative, a little bit of animus toward government. And, uh, and I think Trump benefits exponentially from that growth along our coast. Yeah. That, that won't be anywhere near as evangelical. It won't Christian Christians, uh, you know, Trump's Christian bona fides or not. 
and I, and I, I'll be paying close attention to how the coast votes in this Republican be, primary. Yeah. That's good insight. I'll, I'll be not paying attention to that too because you're right. One thing Trump has done over the last several years is kind of coalesce that Republican Party, and, and you don't, you kind of talk about you know those Giuliani Republicans or, or I guess what used to be called Rockefeller Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even they have kind of moved closer to Trump. I mean. Lindsey Graham is a full-fledged Trump Republican now, right? He was not in 2015 and 2016. Lindsey's a lot of things. He's not dumb. He knows where the, <laughs> he knows where his voters are, and they're solidly in Trump's camp. Jared, thank you for your time, my man. Great sure reporting. Um, and that's just kind of an interesting, and I think that is an insight we can provide to some of the national media that aren't as aware of what's happening in South Carolina. It's one of the, um, I mean, I, you can't watch or read a business story without them mentioning the Carolinas. I mean, they're talking about, you know, this Trump civil fraud case. Um, if you aren't careful, people will leave New York. Where are they going? Well, they're going to Texas, Florida, the Carolinas. I mean, that's where they're going. And, you know, I bumped into a a 25-year Philadelphia, I call them a transplant. I mean, there's they're somebody who grew up there, moved here, uh, tired of shoveling snow, tired of high taxes, tired of, um, you know, I guess Democrat government to some degree. But um, they're talking about once you're, once you're from there, move here, uh, 20 years, you're local. So they, they refer to themselves as, I'm they do it a bit tongue-in-cheek, local Yankees. You know, you guys are the real locals. You're the OGs. I mean, you're the OGs of local, but we're, we're, we're deserving of the title local as well. And I don't think the national media understand the how evangelical South Carolina Republican primary was and how it is so heavily influenced now there's kind of a power struggle. Um, if I were running for governor of South Carolina, I mean, when I ran in 2010, I mean, Kahaley told me, you got to spend a lot of time in Greenville, man. I mean, you got to go to these prayer meetings and prayer breakfast. You got to convince them that you're a devout Christian. And I mean, I was, but you got to, there's still a politics you got to play. You got to stay there. You got to be a, a guest at this church and that church. And you got to go kiss the ring at Bob Jones. I mean, there are about eight or 10 opinion leaders there. And I did all of that. I mean, I did every bit of that. But I saw the writing on the wall about Horry County. I mean, I, you know, in 2010, I don't know what the numbers were then, but I just knew that some of the Republican Party groups in Horry County were growing like crazy. And, I mean, this would have been prior to Trump. Trump gets there in, in 16. But I sensed some of this nationalism, some of the uh, kind of America first before we called it, America first. They weren't as interested in the Bible as they were the Constitution. That'd probably be kind of an interesting way. Uh, when you went to the upstate, you need to quote scripture and know a little bit about the Constitution. When you went to the coast, you better know the Constitution. You know, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't write the Constitution. I mean, you, you better talk to me about some of the ones. You see where I'm headed. And I think the national media. And in, in all honesty, they probably shouldn't understand it as well as we do. But I think they under, I think they oversimplify South Carolina now. Um, and we're on our way to probably seven, seven and a half, maybe eight million, million people. Do, do this for me. Go to Google Earth and just punch in Horry County, South Carolina. And look at the development that has happened and the development is still yet to come. It will, I mean, it's staggered. I mean, I, I grew up here, so I went to the beach, and it was kind of a, you know, they shut it down on Labor Day, and they opened it back up around Memorial Day, maybe Easter, depending on how early or late Easter was. 
it is a, I mean, it is a, a densely populated, becoming, it's not there yet. It's becoming a densely populated coastal urban area. I mean, that, that's what it'll be designated as. And I don't know what the, what the ceiling is. I don't have any idea how many people will eventually live in, in Horry County. I may do this for tomorrow, just for my edification, not yours. I may go back and look at how many Republicans votes were cast in 2010 in the Republican primary for me and Nikki, and how many were cast, how many will be cast in 20. That'd be interesting. In the course of 14 years, how many more Republican voters are there in Horry County. I mean, Greenville County's grown like crazy as well, but but nowhere in our state has grown like Horry County. And it is to be seriously considered if you're trying to win a Republican primary in South Carolina. You can leave your Bible, but you better bring your Constitution. Take a break. <laughs> back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Joe in Florence. Hello, Joe. You're on. Uh, good morning, guys. Uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed uh, Robert's assessment of Marsha Blackburn. Uh, I just wanted to say that I used to live in Tennessee, and uh, 25 years ago she was very much a babe. Um, <laughs> but a name that I haven't heard uh, thrown out is a name that, that I kind of like. I was impressed with uh, her in her gubernatorial uh, competition with uh, Ms., uh, Governor Whitmer, uh, Tudor Dixon is someone that I like. She kind of comes across as more of a wife and mom, and uh, uh, that's, uh, that's someone that maybe has a, has a career down the road uh, with, a, with a good, bright political future because I really I thought she was pretty good. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Joe. That's an interesting observation, uh, a mom. And, a, and, and I'm telling you, it's not the males. The female will not. They may admit this. They may not. Got no idea how many female listeners we have. Don't have any idea if we're going to lose any. Females are not inclined to vote for babes. The science shows that. Robert said it. I mean, Robert's mm-hmm. got a lot of data. Female voters are not likely to vote for women who think they're all that. And I'm not saying that Christy Noem thinks she's all that or not, um, but she has that babe effect that is not very popular with female voters. We got to do some wider lines. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? I grew up in the South where Fanny was Fanny. It's not funny. When did it become funny? His mama named me Clay. I'm calling him Clay. Remember the scene in um in Coming to America, the barbershop scene? His name is not Muhammad Ali. His name is Cassius Clay. You, A man has a right to change his name. You call the man by the, whatever name he chooses to be called by. And the other guy said, his mama named him Clay. I'm calling him Clay. If she wants to be called Fanny, it's not hard to say take a load off Fanny. It's about as easy as take a load off Fanny. How do lesbians feel about trans women in their bathrooms and locker rooms? How do they feel? Don't they deserve safe places too? Got no idea how them lesbians feel. Would never profess to know how lesbians feel. Um, not. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, you know, it is what it is. Well, ask but, one and report back to us Yeah, on the Weiner line. Yeah, I mean, if there is a lesbian out there listening, you're more than welcome to call in. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is what we celebrate here on this feeble attempt at radio brilliance. But I am, I am guilty 
of speaking on a lot of things I'm not 100% sure of. Charge me with that crime. I, there is no doubt about it. I opine from time to time on things I don't have some experience or some education in. But what lesbians think is a bridge too far for me. Got no idea what they think about X, Y, or Z. Speaking of chromosomes. Man, don't you hate it when the jack leg in front of you cuts his blinker on and take a left turn at a light after you pull up behind him? Dude, you don't want to get me started on things I hate about drivers. (laughs) I mean, this show, could we not back off the air for an hour? I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about things I don't like relating to other people's driving habits. Here's where I start. You ready? I mean, I've convinced myself, nobody else, but I've convinced myself that I am the only able driver on the roads of South Carolina. There is no other person Mm -hmm. in South Carolina qualified by my criteria to drive an automobile. I am the only person that knows how to drive. I am the only person that executes that privilege with the degree of competency. Um, so, so we can start, we can go from there. Um, there well, here, here's, here's the perfect example. You are always driving the perfect speed for where you are and where you're going. The person driving faster is a maniac, and the person driving slower is an idiot. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I am driving That's the, the perfect speed. the way it always speed. works. I'm, I'm doing the perfect thing. Um it's just, it's, it's people's driving habits. Here's what I'll say. And here's what gets to me worse than you can imagine. And I guess there's jealousy. I mean, I guess jealousy motivates me in some weird way. I don't think it does, but it probably does. When, when I stop to let someone walk by, you know, some of the pedestrian right-of-ways and some of these retail businesses, I mean, I try to be respectful. I don't run over anybody. So I stop and I let you, you know, kind of, you know, make your way across the parking lot and you walk slower than a snail crawls. That makes me want to run over you. I mean, it really and truly does. I mean, it makes me want to Duly run over noted. you. noted. But, but I want to go back. If you drive and you don't, when, when the light turns green and you, you're trying to make a left turn and you don't kind of ease out and you wait until it turns red and then you go like gangbusters and you leave me hanging. Right? I mean, you know what I'm yep. talking about oh, sure. here? Yep. Um, with the, the lazy turn. I mean, there's so many things I could go into. But but I want to go back to walking across the parking lot like a snail and taking your sweet time driving wherever it is you're going. You're obviously, you obviously have a luxury I don't have. You're not in a hurry. Your time's not spoken for. Mine is. And, I, and I'm asking those who don't have anywhere to go, not a damn thing to do, be considerate of those who don't have that luxury in our lives. I don't have enough money in the bank. I don't have enough day's work behind me. I've got to still kind of plug along and make my way. And I need to get certain places by certain times. And yes, there are times I'm in a hurry. But, but I don't know that people in a hurry are more disrespectful than people who absolutely aren't. I mean, I understand moderation. I understand compromise. I get all that. But for those of you who have lives that don't require any sense of urgency, I just ask that you understand there are those of us who do. And don't get me started on the left lane bandit. Well, there's so many things we could get started on. 
You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260. It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Winer Line. There aren't many questions I'll decline to answer. I'll give about any. Um, the, 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 the good old, I don't know, uh, team try, you know what I mean? Uh, win one for the team, win one for the Gipper, do the best you can. Um, th- th- what a lesbian thinks. And I, I just don't, I can't get there, but I, I don't have any idea what they're thinking when they live that lifestyle. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.